Uh, so how are you? It's been a while. I'm very well, thank you. I have a lot to cover because I uh, my last episode was the Lisa Jackson episode, so it wasn't really news related. So it's yep. there's a lot on the agenda. Um, trying to think of where, even where to start. I guess we could start with quarterly results. I don't know. Um, I don't. I mean, well, I just wrote a big piece, <laughs> but. <laughs> about iPhone sales in China, but I, I don't know. I don't think it's major. I don't think the quarterly results this, this time were all that bad or good. You know, I think long story short, my take on them is that it was a pretty good quarter everywhere except China, and it was sales. iPhone sales continuing to slide in China turned a pretty good quarter into an eh, okay quarter where it was yeah, they- flat. Yeah, Overall. flat, I think, is a great word to describe it. And there were two things that Tim Cook said that really stood out to me. And one was uh, when they're talking about new customer acquisition, that the rate of switchers from Android to iPhone was up everywhere when you discounted China. Yeah. Which is a different story than they used to tell. But that's a big <laughs> that's a big but because yeah. part of what I wrote about today based on a, uh, a very good column by a friend of the show, Ben Thompson, um, with some market research, there's two at least two – Two pieces of market research, one from China and uh, another from uh, UBS analysts that was that came out last year, uh, show that in China uh, there's a lot less, a lot lower retention rate. Meaning, when an I, somebody who already owns an iPhone goes to buy a new phone, do they buy another iPhone or do they switch to another brand? That's retention rate. And it's really pretty consistent in the West. It's pretty consistently in the mid to high 80s. In the U.S., in the U.K., in Germany, it's you know, for for two or three years now, it's very consistently 84, 85. Germany's even a little higher, 88, 89. Uh, Japan is a little lower, like mid 70s, but pretty flat year to year. But in China, it it went from like Western levels in the 80s, like in a couple years ago, to around 50 percent now, which is not good from Apple's perspective. No, it's a very different narrative than what they spoke about previously. Uh, if you flash back a couple of years when they were talking about the lack of low entry-level pricing on iPhones, one of the things that Apple said is they didn't need to be your first phone if all you wanted was the cheapest phone. If cheapness was your primary feature, that, that was great, but it wasn't a feature they were competing on. And they would count on the fact that you would get into smartphones, and then if you wanted a better phone experience, you'd upgrade to an iPhone. And a lot of people did that either for status or for iOS, for iOS apps. But that's no, that's no longer the case in China. There is still the status symbol implement, but as Ben pointed out, the the platform layer has shifted from base operating system to messaging. Yeah, and especially it's particularly this app WeChat, yeah. which is I think only in China. I don't know, or at least it's really only a sensation in China. But it's you know truly staggering numbers. It's a four year old company or a four year old app from another company, but it's I don't nine hundred million monthly active users, something like that. Um, and I, I don't want to go too. I'll, I'll put a link. I, I swear to God, in the show notes, uh, uh, at least to my article, which has a link to the to the post from a, a woman named Connie Chen uh, at, at uh, Anderson Horowitz, um, explaining more or less for you know here what is WeChat and why you know why is it a sensation in China? And long story short, it's sort of like an OS in a in an app where it's a messaging app, but you can do so much stuff. You can pay for it's like you know, like an Apple Pay type competitor where you can go into a store and use WeChat to pay for the lunch while you're in line. Um, and you know, like Ben has said that in China, it's it it makes you look like a rube if you pay with yeah. cash. Everybody else is paying with WeChat. Um, 
just all sorts of stuff. You can buy stuff. It's a shopping app. It's, you know, it, that all sorts of companies that would like to be on the WeChat platform set up their own, um, like authorized accounts, like a special account status that that opens up a bunch of API, APIs, so you can have a programmatic backend, so other WeChat users can, when they're chatting with you know, uh, you know Renee and John Incorporated, we can sell them T-shirts or sneakers or whatever right in the WeChat app. Um, yeah, and messaging is fragmented, so it doesn't really like you don't have to own messaging everywhere. As long as you own the China right. market with WeChat, you're fine. The Japanese market with Line, it's almost like people who are such casual computer users that all they ever use is Facebook. It makes no difference to them if they're on a Mac or a Windows PC or a library terminal or anything. Their entire right. computing experience is Facebook, and it makes it easy to migrate. Right. My argument, and I've said this, you know, uh, I've always thought this, and I still I believe it's always been true and always will be true, is that in the in the the basic Apple's model is selling nice hardware differentiated by proprietary software. That's also nice, but it's the, the software part is more important than the hardware part. Um, because that's what makes people sticky to the platform, you know? And so like a Mac user and I, you know, I, I've put this forth before. I, I think you would agree with me. I love, I just love it as a thought experiment, but would you rather use, uh, Apple's OS on competing hard on some other hardware, uh, or would you rather use um, uh, some other hardware platform that's running? Wait, some other hardware platform running Apple's OS, or would you rather use Apple's hardware running the other OS? So, for example, would you rather have like I would rather have a Google Pixel that runs iOS, hypothetically, since that's not really possible, instead of say an iPhone Seven that's running Android. Uh, totally, and I think it's easy to see because there are other companies that can manufacture beautiful hardware, and they're in fact the suppliers of a lot of Apple's components. So we know they can make really good components, but no one else has proven they can make really good software yet. That's a much uh, more uh, rarer skill, right? And and with the iOS example, it's it's a real hypothetical because I don't even think it's possible. I really think that there there's technical aspects of like the, um, you know, the secure enclave and stuff like that that would keep something from iMessage from working. Like in my hypothetical example, I'd have everything. I, you know, my iMessage would work, my I, iCloud ID would work on this Pixel running iOS, but I would rather have that. Even though I do, in, in the abstract, prefer an iPhone 7 over um, the Google Pixel, which is the, the latest Android phone that I'm most familiar with, and which I have to say is actually, you know, the nicest Android phone I've ever, I ever saw. Um, Versus the other way around, it would drive me nuts you have to, to use Qualcomm's crappy processors instead of the A series. But you could live right. with it. Yeah, I could live with it. It's you know, it's fast enough. Uh, you know, I, I peg. You know, if you look at the specs, it's they're like somewhere on eighteen months to twenty four months behind. I mean, I'd still, you know, I would rather use a two year old iPhone six than yep. use, you know, a cutting edge Android because the platform is most important to me. It's just my mind is warped around it. It's part of the way I think about how to do stuff on the phone. Um, and whenever I pose that question, you know, and I, with computers, it actually is possible because you could create, you can create a Hackintosh that, that works, although there's still is things like iMessage still, you know, has problems and stuff like that because there's security, you know, it, it's not perfect. Hackintoshes don't work perfectly, but they do work. Uh, I'd rather have a Hackintosh like on a ThinkPad running Mac OS X than um, anything, Windows, you name it. Chrome or whatever, whatever else, a desktop PC operating system I could have running on a MacBook. Yeah, absolutely. The same. But I have heard, I know there are people that's probably listening to the show right now. I've heard from them whenever I bring this up, because I do think it's an interesting hypothetical question. Um, 
there are definitely people who I hear from who, you know, read, read my stuff or listen to the show and say, no, I, you know, used Windows forever, but switched to a MacBook uh, just because of the hardware. And, and a lot of times they'll say like, and you know, not just the way it looks, but like, I just got sick of the fact, like I wanted a laptop that just, when I opened it up, it turns on, when I close it, it shuts. Yeah. It's trackpad never had works. Trackpad works. Trackpad working is a huge thing. Yeah. And I know Joanna Stern, friend of the show is often, she's like the, the absolute queen of, uh, trackpad judgments. Like she's got the ranking in her head of every <laughs> single trackpad quality in the whole market. And I totally trust her judgment on trackpad quality. Um, that's a huge one. But the people who say that they switched like that, a lot of times say, but that's the only reason. And that they're, you know, for example, very common scenario among my audience, at least, are like web developers whose entire life revolves mm-hmm. around uh, Chrome, a text editor, and a terminal window. And any, you know, so somebody like that, if that's your life, if your life is just Google Chrome, a text editor, and a terminal, you can easily switch to some other brand of laptop running another operating system, you know, because those things are available on every platform. Yeah, absolutely. Same as a Facebook example. It's just your entire environment is abstracted away from your computer. Right. Well, that's why I think Facebook is such a, not really a threat to Apple, but like a direct threat, but certainly looms large as an an indirect threat, you know, like somebody like it's far more of a threat. Facebook is far more threatening to Apple than to to me, at least than say Samsung, even though you would think Samsung would be the one who's Mm -hmm. the threat because they do the same thing. They make $700 cell phones that when somebody goes into a store to decide what to buy, they're only going to buy one. Um, Whereas I, I feel like Apple has it, it successfully is in a has always been or at least has been for 20 years in a position where the quality of their products are enough that they don't really have to worry about somebody else mm-hmm. who also sells nice things because they've got the software platform to differentiate themselves the problem with something like facebook is that facebook in a way is sort of like the wechat of the west where you know if it's the most used app and it from a lot of people it is uh and it does all the same things in mostly the same ways on iOS and Android, it's a lot easier for somebody to switch from an iPhone to Android if their most important app just works exactly the same way and lets them do all the same things. Yeah, and it's interesting because the web arguably helped Apple at a time when they were very far behind in terms of just market share and and mind share uh, with PC, but the web let them uh, compete. You could just have a web browser and you have access to all these things, and it did ease the the transition back to Mac. Uh, but it goes that door goes both ways, and it can let people right. leave as quickly as it let them in. Right. It was it that sort of uh, cross platform parity that the web created was helpful to Apple when Apple was struggling, but it's detrimental to Apple now that Apple's in a position of strength. And it's interesting because there's different layers of abstraction where Facebook abstracts away a lot of the operating system and you're just interfacing. Because for a normal person, the interface is the app and the interface is the hardware. It's the face that they, literally the face that they see and they work with. And you can change all the plumbing behind it and they may not notice. But if you change one button on an interface, you'll get complaints or, you know, people will tell you about it. Uh, and there's voice now assistance too, where you use Siri, for example, which totally disintermediates Google and all they see is queries coming from Apple. And it's really regard, Apple could switch the plumbing uh, for that. 
that, and then Alexa intermediates things. And it's almost like this battle for who can be the final point of the user interface, and that's the experience that becomes sticky. Right. And, you know, and Facebook is doing WeChat similar things, you know, with Messenger yep. and stuff where there's uh, sort of apps within apps. And it's sort of the sort of it's the sort of thing that Apple is in its in its way has tried to discourage in the app store all along. Right. Like they were never going to allow, say, it's part of the whole flash thing in the early years when that was contentious. And when Adobe first had a sort of flash to native iOS development chain and apple like put the kibosh on it it was sort of you know what i'm sure there it's strategically there were multiple reasons but one of them was they were never going to allow something like an adobe app that when you open the app gives you like a secondary homepage of flash-based games that you can play yeah. right you can't have an app store within the app store except that if you already have a certain momentum and size and importance like Facebook and like WeChat has in China, you can kind of get away from it, you know, get away with it because Apple can't really afford, they can't say we're not going to allow WeChat on the iPhone in China. And they can't say we, we're not going to allow Facebook on the iPhone. Yeah. People would just buy something else at that point. Right. But so, you know, they even talk about apps like, you know, Facebook has things they call apps that you can have within Messenger. And like if you and I started a new chat app and came out with it and we said that there were apps you could have within the app, it would never, it would not yeah. make it through app approval at, in, in the iOS app store or probably wouldn't. Um, it's just something that some, you know, a company like Facebook that has that sort of what would you call it? Stature? Uh, yeah, well, it also blurs the web services line because like Apple wouldn't blink with just like you go to google.com and there's your Gmail and your Google Calendar. Those are just normal web experiences. And they've done that, they've, but they've packaged those things up inside chat clients or inside social networks instead of having them as a bunch of standalone URLs. And that gives a very different experience and probably a lot more compelling experience. Right. And, you know, one of the ways that Facebook is sort of threatening to Apple is in theory – like, I don't think this would happen. I think it's, it, you know, so far it's actually more likely the other way around where something like, you know, Facebook's subsidiary Instagram was iOS only for years before it came out for, for Android. Um, but if in theory Facebook somehow got better, like it was a better experience mm -hmm. on Android than it is on the iPhone, that's a threat to Apple if people's favorite app and most used app is Facebook and word spreads around that, oh, but you can't do the cool new X, Y, and Z that all your friends who have Android phones are doing on Facebook unless you get an Android phone. Like that's Facebook is so big and so popular that if something like that happened hypothetically, that's a problem for Apple. Yeah, I don't want to relitigate the whole App Store thing, but when you look at it, if you look at the App Store and you look at Google Play, for example, Google Play offers freedoms and features that a lot of App Store developers have been wanting for years. But you can't really point to the, to things on Google Play and say those are apps that aren't those are transformative apps that are simply right. not possible on iPhone. You can get Snapchat on iPhone, you can get Uber on iPhone. But if there was ever a case where an app could only exist on Android because the policies or capabilities of Google Play and the Android ecosystem were such to make it so, that would I think be the only thing that could really change Apple's outlook on how all that thing on how iOS and the App Store works. Right. Like if you really think about it, it's Apple's uh, 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 they have control over the App Store that software vendors haven't had previously over yeah. their platforms, right? That they didn't have over the Mac because you could, you know, you can install any app you want on the Mac. Um, 
uh, and so technically, yes, they could ban anything, but practically speaking, they don't really have, they have lots of control, but they don't really have total control. Like yeah. there's only so far that they can push Facebook on if Facebook is doing shady stuff behind the scenes, like they have in the past, like when they've used audio APIs or right. bloatware, yeah. You know, like they, you know, that was one of them, like where, where in the, over the years when you look and say, well, why in the world is Facebook doing so much in the background and how are they doing it where there's rules of, um, you know, that apps get killed in the background and Facebook at one point, one of the things they did is, um, they, they were playing, there was an API so that an app that's playing audio can keep playing it in the background indefinitely and it won't get killed because if you, let's say you're playing a podcast and you're not you're doing other things on your phone, like you're going through email and browsing the web while you're listening to the podcast. You don't want your podcast player to get killed by iOS because it's quote unquote in the background because yeah. you're you're getting something from it. It's playing audio. So Facebook <laughs> used that API to play a completely silent <laughs> audio track so that they could keep going in the background while they do <laughs> other things like waiting for notifications and whatever else they're doing. Doing in the I mean, background. it's almost as egregious as when they had two hamburger buttons on both sides of the app. Right. <laughs> I'd say that this was worse. I, two hamburger <laughs> buttons don't run your battery down. But this, so, and this problem still exists. Like, uh, I think it was a month ago, people started complaining about the same issue with Pokemon Go, and I started investigating. And if you go, it says with like two or three hours on the background audio, which is not something that any app besides a streaming right. client should ever present. Right. It should get jetsoned immediately. Right. Uh, and so Facebook can get away with stuff like that in a way that other companies yep. can't. Uh, the other good example of that, I mean, I don't want to tie too many stories together, it's, but while we're on it, is the uh, story that came out a few weeks ago about Uber um, yeah. getting caught by Apple. Um, we could save that, though. Maybe we should save that for after the sure. break. Um, so anyway, iPhone in China. What else What else do we have to say about that? Uh well, I think just beyond China is that Tim Cook used the same sort of wording when he spoke about iPad and said that, you know, I, large screened iPads were up. Uh, sales of all large screen iPads were up when overall iPad sales were down again. And that sort of was pointing the finger right at the iPad mini. Yeah, I think so. That I, th- I think the, the reading between the lines on that, that is a good, I, I, that did strike me too. Reading between the lines on that and also looking at the revenue number, yeah. which wasn't really up either. Like, um, like for example, for the Mac sales, unit sales were up 4%. Good. Year over year from the same three months last year, but revenue was up 14%. Yeah. So 4% units, 14% revenue. That tells me that the new MacBook pros are selling pretty well Yeah. because that's the only thing that's new in the lineup. Uh, and the ASPs are higher on those models. And the ASPs are higher on those models. And so, you know, that that it's, you know, if you're if there's any concern out there that the sort of mixed reviews those MacBook Pros got, it doesn't seem like it's had an adverse effect on sales. Yeah. It seems like the opposite, that they're actually proving to be pretty popular because they've driven the revenue per unit up. Um, but with the iPad, with them saying, and again, you know, it... it those those analyst calls are you know they can't lie on them or else they're committing securities <laughs> fraud like yes. they're very very careful i mean you know because you got you read the transcript and read every word i mean it's not loosey goosey talk uh no and they are well prepared they have every fact in front of them before they get on that microphone right so if they say i mean again they don't they you know in the actual pdf data document for the, the quarterly numbers they they give you units per product line 
uh, like just for iPad and the revenue for the product line, and that's it. And so they they don't break down. In the old days, like ten years ago, they used to break down. Like for example, Mac sales by desktop and notebook. Um, but they don't have any breakdown like that for iPads, like between big and small. But if they say on the call the big ones are up, it but they must be up, right? Like it's either that or they're committing securities fraud. But given that that everything was still down, that must mean that iPad mini sales have just dropped off the yeah. face of the earth. Which makes sense given the advent of the larger phones and the lack of updates to the iPad mini platform. Yeah, I, it's sort of a chicken and egg question for me is, are they not even updating the iPad mini because people aren't buying the iPad mini? Or are people not buying the iPad mini because they haven't updated the iPad mini in a while? Well, this is this is a, a bit of a tangent, but I went to a, a mutual friend of ours sort of prodded us about macOS uh, server the other day. So I went to pick up a Mac Mini so that we could write a series of articles on iMore about the benefits of macOS server. And I went to the Apple Store, I bought it, took it home, and it was running LCAP. <laughs> Which, I mean, that to me shows there's not a, a huge turnover rate on Mac Minis. And we talk about how Mac Mini is a languishing product, and it's the same chicken and the egg problem. But that sort of gave me an indicator about how few Mac Minis might actually be moving. <laughs> It's pretty telling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's running elk. <laughs> uh, it'd be funny if it o- opened it up and it was running like Tiger or something like that. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's got like the old aqua stripes. <laughs> it's like, how, how old is this? Um, uh, PowerPC apps. Uh Trying to think anything else from the quarterly results. Uh, services are way up, which is as predicted. I mean, they've, they've been saying this for a while that hey, we're you know we're we're hell bent on services, uh, yep. uh, and it's showing in the results. Uh, and it's repeatable revenue from the same customer base, so it's sort of the revenue that Wall Street likes because you, you like we saw in China, you can't guarantee someone's going to buy the next iPhone, but if they're paying you subscription revenue, you have a certain right. amount of period you can look forward to that revenue. Well, and I think I think the other thing that and it ties into my argument on the software being more important than the hardware in terms of not in any particular quarter, but in the long run of having a loyal customer base that when they go to re- replace their blank, whether it's their watch or whether it's their phone or whether it's their laptop, if they've already got an Apple one, they're going to buy another Apple one. Uh, yeah. And to have... The services revenue is a sign that they're creating new ways that make more stickiness in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it's good in both directions, too. And I think they've even said this on the call. It's that it, you, not in these terms, though, is that you can either double your amount of customers or you can double the amount of revenue you get from your customers. And both of them result in substantial increases. And as Apple starts to reach those those big numbers where it's really hard to start opening up new iPhone markets, you've got Verizon, you've got international carriers, you've got China Mobile, uh, getting people onto higher revenue streams with things like subscription services just creates more value from each customer. Right. And I think it's important, too, because Apple is if Apple is Apple, they're never going to uh, they're never going to have market share like monopoly yeah. market share of these products because they're just they just that's just not what Apple does is make products that are so low priced yeah. as to, you know, take over the commodity level market. I mean, that's just it wouldn't an Apple that tried to do that would no longer be recognizable as the Apple we know. Yeah, um, there are certain markets they just choose not to compete in. Right. And, you know, it's, you know, whatever percentage of the PC market they have, four, five, six, ten percent, whatever you want to call it, you know, their market of the phone 
you know, is higher, significantly higher than that, but it still is a minority and, and not even close to 50%. It's, you know, even in the most popular iPhone countries, it's, you know, 20%, something like that. It's where we see the differential between their market share and their profit share. Right. And, you know, being able to get more money out of the existing customers is a path to growth that is, it lets them still be Apple. Yeah, there was one other thing that I thought was really interesting, and that's when he was talking about Apple Watch, and they still won't give numbers. They did the Amazon-like thing where they said we had almost twice the amount of sales as last year. So X was last year. This was 2X. But then Tim Cook said that if you take Apple Watch and you combine it with AirPods and with Beats, although he wasn't specific which Beats products, just the W1 or all of them, that Probably makes a Fortune 500 company. Yeah, my guess is this, there's a large yeah. amount of Beats money in there. It makes a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. Um. Yeah, well, let's take a break and we'll come back to that because I, I have some comments on the the watch. Um, but let me take a break and thank our first sponsor. It's a good friend of ours. You know him, Squarespace. Squarespace is the place to go if you need to make a new website. I say this all the time. They sponsored the show for a long time. I'm telling you right now, next time you have an idea for a website, any kind of website, any project that needs a website, a podcast, a store, Try it at Squarespace first. You will be, if you haven't recently or never have, you will be surprised at how easy and flexible Squarespace is to create a website. How non, totally non-technical you have to be. You just do it right there in the website. You see the website. You pick from a template. It looks like it. you see it right there on your screen. And then if you want to move elements around, you just drag them around. Uh, if you are technically savvy enough to want to put your own JavaScript in or do modify the CSS or something like that, you can do it. Uh, you would be surprised. Here's the other thing too, because part of the easiness of using Squarespace is this ability to pick templates and they have so many of them from different types of sites and have a professionally looking website. But I hear that. If I hear that, if I'm listening to this show and I hear that, my thought turns to, well, I don't want to have a cookie cutter site that looks like everybody else's. Like say back in the day when you'd get like a blog Bot blog, and you'd know it was a Blogspot blog because there were like two or three templates to choose from, and everybody had one of those. Squarespace has so many templates to choose from, and the templates they have, you can modify them so easily to customize them to your own brand that you don't even know when you're on a Squarespace site. It's, it's unbelievable to me how many sites, when you start poking around and looking in the source code and you see that it's a Squarespace site, you're like, wow, I never would have guessed that because it looks so uniquely branded to this restaurant or uh clothing company or whatever it is you're trying to make. So next time you make a website, build it with Squarespace and use the code Gruber, my last name. And when you pay, you will save 10% off your first order. Remember that next time you need to make a website. Um, so I, I've, I've, sometimes I worry that I repeat myself too often, Renee, that I've got like <laughs> three or four columns and I just keep writing them all over and over and over again. But the oh, one I, I just wrote too. a couple of weeks ago was... Some I forget the guy's name, but somebody wrote a column that the Apple Watch hasn't changed Apple, hasn't done anything for Apple at all. Uh, and it, I think if you read between the lines of his arguments, it's that it it's more or less that it the I, I, Apple Watch is nowhere near an iPhone size mm -hmm. product and probably never will be, and therefore it's it's meaningless to Apple or close to meaningless. Uh, and, and I just think that's such a wrong way to look at it. It's like there's, there really might, there might never be another iPhone size product. 
in any industry, let alone Apple. Like Apple may not ever have an iPhone size hit. It may well be that no other company has an iPhone size hit in terms of just how much money and how many people around the world the market size is. And so I it's, think judged by that, no, nothing Apple ever does will, will succeed by that merit. And I think if Apple internally took that mindset, it would paralyze the company. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, iPhone creates more profit than companies that have oligopoly control over scarce fossil fuel resources. And people forget that perspective. And they create this false equivalency where everything for Apple has to be measured by the success of iPhone and then everything is seemed to be lacking. Where for other companies, you could sell three Surface books and it's a rousing success and you'll get 19 <laughs> articles out of that. When it, well, we saw that, I think, I forget if it was Neil Seibert or Ben Benedict Evans who tweeted that uh, based on their metrics um, – Apple Watch vastly outsold by, by it was a factor of two or three, uh, Amazon's uh, Alexa, uh, sorry, Echo product. And yet people were touting how great and transformative Echo was and what a dismal failure Apple Watch was. And it was completely out of whack with anything assembling, like any, any resemblance to facts. Right. It's, it's graded on such a bizarre curve. And, and yes. it's a perfect example because Alexa, uh, like every other Amazon product, the Echo doesn't get numbers reported and, yeah. and Apple Watch gets a Bezos curve of, uh, twice as much <laughs> as ever. Yeah. Um, and it's true, but but it's, you can, it's really important technology. You can kind of, at least with Apple Watch, it's in that other category and you can, mm-hmm. there is a revenue number for the, you know, the, it's like the headphones and beats and, uh, Apple TV. And um, uh, Apple Watch, uh, yeah. And given I, I, Apple TV is almost certainly pretty static. Like there hasn't been an update. There hasn't been a big promotional push. There hasn't been a big change. You know, since the fall 2015 when the, the current Apple Apple TV came out. So you know, it's pretty reasonable to assume Apple TV is flat at best. Uh, AirPods is a little hard to gauge for this quarter because they're obviously popular enough that they're back ordered, but it's they're hard so to, constrained. Yeah, it's hard to can it's hard to tell like just how constrained they are. And also, know? I think you pointed out that they're not sold at at a huge margin. They're right. sold as cheaply as possible. Well, the revenue number though might be big because they don't you yeah. know they're not going to break that down by profit. But I have reason to believe that they're there's they're not a big money maker at this point. Um, and it makes sense that obviously you know, they must be hard to make because the you know that's four yeah. months in and they're still six weeks out if you go to order them. Um, as an aside on that, for anybody looking to buy AirPods, I've every I, I wrote about that on Daring Fireball a couple times recently, and a couple people have written to me and said that they scored AirPods uh, on the fly recently from like AT and T stores or like Verizon stores that there's. They're they're showing up if you're you know if you really want them and you don't want to wait six weeks try try stores like AT and T and Best Buy and stuff like that and you might just get lucky and get them before you would if you place an order at Apple.com so that's my my tip for anybody out there looking for AirPods um, but you know I I think it but the numbers from those that Apple reported and other back up you know the idea that Apple Watch is selling pretty well and personally I mean I know this is obviously very unscientific but personally. I see more. I see more and more Apple watches on real people out in the streets than ever before. I see a lot, an awful lot of them. I went to the deli the other day just to order a Montreal smoked meat sandwich, and the waiter was wearing an Apple watch. And I asked him how he liked it, and he said, "Best thing in the world. We're not allowed to have our phones with us when we work, but I can still check my text messages on my Apple Watch." Yeah, there's a, a big construction project across the street from from my house. Um, 
and I just I noticed the other day that uh, the guy who controls the uh, the crane is wearing an Apple Watch, and I thought that you know it might be the same that that might be the exact reason for that is you know that he you know while he's doing this he can't have his phone out, but he if he glances at his wrist he can see you know text notifications. I don't know, but just seems you know I see him all the time. I see an awful lot of them. It backs up yeah. the idea again, not like it's as popular as the iPhone. But nothing is, <laughs> really, yeah. literally. Um, but I sure see them a lot. I really do. It does a subset of important brief tasks for you in a way that saves you having to go to your iPhone. The same way your iPhone does a subset of really important tasks that saves you having to go to your Mac. Yeah. But so it depends how important those are to you. While we're talking about Apple Watch, we can tie in the other what story from this week where uh, Apple Insider discovered that a couple of big name apps, iPhone apps, have dropped their Apple Watch counterparts. Uh, was it Amazon, eBay, and yeah. the one that to me was most telling was Google Maps. Yeah, I have to admit, when I first heard this story, my guess, and I, I checked into it, but I couldn't get an answer, was that it happened at the same time they launched their iMessage app. And I just thought they screwed up something in their bundle and enabled the iMessage app and disabled the Apple Watch app by accident. Uh, and I don't know if that's true or they're going to be updating it for our Watch OS 4 or whatever, but their, state, their subsequent statement made it sound like it was it was returning. It was not a deliberate uh, removal. Well, the, but the telling part is that it, it seemingly happened weeks ago and it, it, nobody really noticed. I mean, Serenity noticed right away and she's like, what's happening here? And started looking into it, but it wasn't a huge story, no. Yeah. Uh, I just think, though, I, I really do. I think, and I think it's, you know, I think the emphasis that Apple, I think Apple is fully aware of this based on what they worked on for iOS 3 and what, how they build it, that, even with the iPhone, it was true that they, you know, they certainly, obviously, at the outset, didn't see how much, uh, how big a deal it would be to be an app platform. Uh, I, they might have had the inkling, but it certainly, you know, and I think it's played out in ways that uh, that even they couldn't foresee. I, I don't think Apple would have predicted in two thousand seven that the iPhone would become the most important and popular camera in the world. It, I, you know, it, it's you don't know, you know, and I feel like they rolled out the Apple Watch. And obviously, I think initially thought that apps were going to be a bigger part of what might make it popular and in real use in even their own use, like not just surveying users, but I think, you know, Apple people using the watch themselves that the health tracking and the using it as a notifications uh, input and output device are far more important than the app story. I think that's absolutely true. It's almost like they overcompensated for the lack of an app store at launch for iPhone by making right. sure no matter what happens or how poorly it performed, they had one available for Apple Watch. And almost the, the heartbreaking part about that is they launched it at the same time that extensibility was launched. And extensibility was one of the technologies that allowed them to have apps on the Apple Watch. But they at the same time that like you've written this really well, like what HTTPS, what uh, web services were to websites, where they basically, you didn't need a website anymore. You could just provide an API. Extensions were like that to apps. You didn't necessarily need a binary blob on the same device. You could have features and functionality that could be on the same device, but could be projected or surfaced in many different places in many different ways. Uh, and they had that with Apple Watch, but instead they sort of took this mentality of binary blobs where you had to have an app on a carousel screen that you could tap with your finger to launch. And we've seen them move away from that. But I think right. in hindsight, we're going to see that the app, the watch has to be a, a, a function, uh, sorry, a feature device and not a, an app device. Yeah. And I think I think, you know, and it, I played around, I don't want 
he's a friend, and I'm, I appreciate the feature. But Marco Arment has worked on a, a much improved watch mm-hmm. app for Overcast, and I know that he spent an awful lot of um, time in the last few months on it. Uh, and it shipped recently, and then over the weekend, I thought, well, I was I was was going to go for a run, and I thought, yeah, I in theory, I would love to go with just my watch and AirPods, um, and not have to figure out a way to carry my phone um, because there's just no great way. I've got some kind of like belt like thing that I put underneath my shirt where I can strap it in, um, but I you know I don't want to run with it in my pockets. I don't like using an armband. There's no good way to go with a phone. Um, so I thought, well, I'm per- this is perfect. I, I'm not just trying this watch app of Overcast out. I'm, you know, I actually, I actually want this feature. I would love to do this, and it was absolutely horrible. It was just terrible. It was hard to get. It was hard to get it installed on the watch in the first place, which shouldn't be the case. It was like that from the watch app on the phone. It said installing, and it just said installing dot 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 forever. Uh, and then once it was installed, getting an audio, it, it's like getting audio from the phone to the watch takes forever. And even once it did, and I got a, I got a, a podcast over there to listen to, and I went to play, I got my AirPods synced to it. Uh, the audio was like whisper quiet. And, and I, you know, I mentioned this to Marco, and it's obviously not always the case. And other people are saying it happens sometimes, but he has no idea why. Uh, it just and it was I, I wasted like forty five minutes and I was just like yeah. you know what screw it I'm just going with my phone like I always do. <laughs> and it was yeah, so no, much better. Absolutely. I mean it's just it's just too finicky. It's way too finicky. Whereas there are other things like um, uh, do you ever use this app? Do you ever use the service Nuzzle N U Z Z E L? I've seen it. Yeah, I've used it on the iPhone. It's really great. It's it's a service you you sign in with your Twitter account, and what it does is it's really really great if, you, if anybody out there wants to try it. I find uh, tons of stuff that I link to on Daring Fireball from it, but what it does is it follows your own the people you follow on Twitter and when a certain threshold of the people you follow have all tweeted the same link or linked to the same article, it gives you a notification about it on the assumption that if like five people you follow have all tweeted the same link to blank, you want to know about blank and it gives you a notification for that. And when I first heard about it, I thought that this is going to be something that I'm going to try and quickly get rid of because I'm sort of sensitive to getting – I don't want too many notifications from anything. Uh, I find that whatever algorithm Nuzzle uses to, to do this, I mean, maybe it's super simple. Maybe it's just – I don't know, you know, just but just the idea that if if five of the people I follow on Twitter link the same thing, I want to know about it. The ratio of uh, interesting links to the times they notify me is so high that I, I have no interest in turning it off. Um, but they don't even have a watch app, but yeah. the notifications go to my watch just automatically. Like you don't, you know, like the, the only thing I would want from them on my watch, they don't even need a watch app for, because the notifications, if I, if my phone is in my pocket, automatically go to my watch. It's I remember so Brad great. Ellis was saying that when, I forget when, right, when watch was introduced that in his opinion, developers should spend more time making a really awesome notification experience and not worry about an app at all. And I yep. think that turns out to be canny advice. Right. So like Nuzzle doesn't even have a watch app. And to me, the watch app that they that I get is exactly what I want. Yeah. And poor Marco spent months working on a, on an advanced watch app that maybe someday will turn into something that's actually good and useful on like a future version of the watch. Like maybe the foundation will be there so that when the watch actually gets its own LTE or something like that, uh, it actually will be useful, but he spent all this time on it and it's, I, I, I don't want to use it at all, even though I use overcast almost every day. 
Yeah, I've tried it. I, I like it. it. It has the issues that you mentioned, and I always have my iPhone with me, even if I'm out. So I haven't had the I haven't been forced to use it. But uh, it's a it's a problem that people want solved, but it, it is not something that's technically solvable right now. Right. Like in all honesty, I, if, if Overcast didn't have a watch app, it wouldn't matter to me at all because the only thing I ever really do I can do through the now playing anyway. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. It's I feel like there's something that Apple. I think they're well aware of it. That's what I think. And I think we'll see more. I think we'll see it go that way. Yeah, I think it's a classic example of, the, you know, they saw everything as a nail. They had an app store hammer and then everything looked like an app nail to them. And in hindsight, you can look back and say, we needed a different approach for this. Yeah. Uh, and I think they reckon, I think they've known that for over a year and a half, which is why we saw watchOS 3 and we'll see watchOS 4 be different. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they do with that. Uh, anything else on, on quarterly results before, before we move on? No, I mean, I, I, I saw at the same time, he was, uh, Tim Cook was on Jim Cramer and said they used uh, Apple Watch to lose 30 pounds, right. which I don't know where that was from. <laughs> right. Like, and again, and Tim Cook does not strike me as a bullshitter, right? No. Like, like he, he's, I, I, if he says he lost 30 pounds, I think he probably lost 30 pounds, but I, I mean, I've seen him on stage mm-hmm. every six months for five six years and there was never any point where it looked like he put on you know or put on or lost 30 pounds yeah i mean that's uh, but anyway I, I, more that, power to him it just it was amazing right. um what did the it was a pretty good interview i i mean for yeah. you know uh a, for, you know i give jim kramer credit for a guy who's not really a, an apple person but rather a finance person um i thought it was a pretty informative interview uh I think that this announcement of a billion, $1 billion fund uh, to promote advanced manufacturing jobs in the U.S. is pretty interesting. That's, that's what Cook announced. The details aren't out yet. I think he said coming at the end of May. Um, yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, it was it was entirely. I mean, it, it was super interesting when you start to decompose the, the relationship that Apple has with the administration, who is heavily pro. Uh, U.S. jobs and U.S. manufacturing and all these elements where Apple has a massive manufacturing capacity outside the U.S., but also a massive amount of money, which we heard about on the call as well, that they want to repatriate. And the last time that happened was under the Bush administration, and this administration might be more amenable. So it's, I think it's a very careful balancing act. Right. Um, and it's uh, – yeah, because one thing that has happened in recent years is – Apple's had this large cash hoard for a long time now, um, although the definition of large keeps <laughs> keeps growing. Um, yeah. Letting out the waistband. But it has changed, even though they've sort of capped it off now where like it's not really growing so much. And, and rather, however much it would be growing, they just keep giving to the, the shareholder, whatever they call it. Uh, it's growing despite the biggest give back in one right. of the biggest give backs in corporate history. Right. But one shift that has happened though is that their US holdings have shrunk and yeah. it's almost entirely overseas. What they have now is almost entirely overseas. And so for like this billion dollar fund in in the US, they're going to borrow to get the money rather yeah. than use it because they don't really have a bill you know, they have a billion, but it's it's it. I don't have it on me. Right. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, in my, it's in my wallet over in yeah. Ireland. <laughs> no, very true. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, what comes of that. And it's, you know, it, I don't think Apple is a, um, 
and they've been thinking about this for a while. I mean, it, and and you know, uh, with the Mac Pro, uh, that was 2013 where they announced that it would be assembled in the U.S. I mean, so it's not like they haven't like like all of a sudden just with Trump in office, they're now looking to toe the line on bringing manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. Um, but I I don't think, and I think if there's a Trumpian aspect to it. I don't think it's so much about towing the line or wanting to please uh, the Trump administration, but more a a pragmatic, mm-hmm. let's make sure we don't get caught flat-footed if they start a trade war with China or do some, impose some other you know, tariff or something like that. Like, let's, let's be ready for anything that might happen now that, that somebody with his temperament and his, his stated policies toward you know, overseas manufacturing jobs as an office. It's almost like preemptive positioning when they bought, you know, a stake in Didi uh, in, in China, you know, because those there's a certain yeah. volatility in that uh, leadership as well. Uh, and it's it's true. I think that was back when they were doing the iFactory series in New York Times. Um, and, and that was a big story. And Apple, you know, making Macs, MacBook Pro, sorry, Mac Pros in the U.S. was a very good story for that, too. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, it, it will be. It's, I mean, you know, Again, you can say like I saw it on on CNBC after um, after the Kramer thing had aired, where somebody was like, you know, given Apple's uh, you know two hundred and fifty billion dollar cash holdings and you know their their quarterly revenue, you know, it's easy to say a billion dollars isn't that much to Apple, but still, a billion dollars is a billion dollars, and saying you're going to commit a billion dollars to assembling, you know, to to advanced assembly and manufacturing jobs in the U.S. is significant. Yeah. If you have $250, you got to give a dollar away. It's still a dollar you got to give away. Right. And it's, you know, a billion is a little different than $1. Yeah. And it's I mean, any problem is easy to solve, Revita. You're not the one in charge of solving it. <laughs> That's what the media keeps forgetting, I think. <laughs> um, let me take another break here and thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Casper. You guys know Casper. They make an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. We just bought a new Casper mattress here at uh, the Gruber family home. Uh, Our son needed a new bed, got him a Casper. He loves it, absolutely loves it. He literally, honest to God, he was mad at me that I didn't get him one sooner. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was that, we were that happy with it. He's that happy with it. It's a great mattress. So here's the deal. This is my favorite thing about them. They don't make you choose a type of mattress. When you need a mattress, you go there, you pick a size, and that's all. And then it comes to you, and you open it up, and you've got a mattress. How do you ship a mattress to somebody? Guess what? It's the the fact that they make it out of like this uh, their own custom blend of like foams. It it comes in a little box. Little box meaning like it might be the biggest package that you're going to get this year delivered to your house but for a mattress it's a surprisingly small box and then they have nice instructions on the outside they tell you to bring it up to the room where you want it first don't open it (laughs) don't open it up downstairs go to the bedroom follow their instructions you open it up it sucks all the air out of the room to fill the mattress so be careful be careful um Make sure you you know take a deep breath before you open it up. And there you go. You got a mattress, and it's comfortable, and it's nice. It's just a nice mattress. And the prices, because they sell directly. They make them right here in the U.S., by the way. They make them here in the U.S. They sell them to you directly. There's no middleman. There's no markup for a retail store or anything like that. Their prices blow away the prices for premium mattresses from the big-name mattress companies. There's just no comparison. 
Uh, where do you go? Get yours today. You try it for a hundred nights in your own home with free delivery. So you don't have to take my word for it. That's comfortable. Go buy one, have it delivered, try it out. You've got over three months, 100 nights, and if you're not happy with it, no questions asked. They will just arrange for someone to come and get it out of your house. No questions asked. Go to casper.com slash the talk show and use that code, the talk show, and you will save 50 bucks towards any mattress. Uh, put an asterisk right here. You can't save 50 bucks on their dog mattresses. I'm sorry, because the dog mattresses are only like a couple hundred bucks. But if you have a dog, and you want to get your dog a bed, get him a Casper. They have an amazing, amazing dog mattress. And I keep mentioning it, and readers keep saying that they bought it for their dog, and their dog won't get up off the mattress. So there you go. My thanks to Casper, makers of fine mattresses. Uh, what else happened recently? I guess this week, uh, Microsoft had their education event, and they unveiled two things. They unveiled, on the hardware size side their own this is their first true laptop something that's not like a detachable tablet type thing that they call the surface laptop uh, and they unveiled a new operating system called windows 10s which do you want to talk about first i was going to say joe belfiore's new blonde haircut oh he <laughs> <laughs> famously a windows phone joe belfiore who went away for a year and decided to focus on education and then came back and is now leading this initiative i didn't see that part of the show yeah, he was. Uh, I don't think they put him on stage, which was interesting. Oh, had, so that's why they I had Myerson on stage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was out front beforehand. Uh, I think maybe the hardware first because were you there? No, we had oh. uh, Daniel Rabino, one of okay. my colleagues, was there. Oh. I watched the video, but I really only watched the video for the 10s part. I didn't watch the 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 hardware part. So, what do you want to talk about first? Uh, the hardware. All right, let's talk about the hardware. Uh, it's so interesting, um, and I'm going to start off with this because why not? It's the it's the talk show. Uh, if this if this laptop had an Apple logo on it, I think the coverage would have been very different than what we saw. How so? Because this was lo- like there was a lot of things about this laptop that were very Apple esque. Like the design looks almost identical to a MacBook Air. The price was almost identical to a MacBook Air. Uh, you know, a lot of the of the video and the, the the language that they used for it was very similar to Apple. It's got one port on it, USB A port instead of a USB C port, but just one port on it, and and it does have the Surface Dock. You know, so you can do other things with it. But I think a, a lot of people who were highly critical of Apple for doing things like a single port MacBook uh, or any of a dozen decisions they've made recently were strangely silent when it came to Microsoft making very similar moves with this laptop. Yeah, one port, it's USB-A, which seems outdated, and then they have a proprietary display port, right? Yeah, and that, the Surface Dock. That, to me, the, the proprietary display port seems like the weird the part that, like, whoa, if Apple did that, that would be that, that would seem yeah. to generate a lot of criticism. I, I don't get... You're, you are true. I wasn't even going to bring that aspect up, but there's... It, <laughs> How can Apple release a laptop with one port and get like get a month of criticism or years of criticism? People still complain about the MacBook. Yep. You know, people call it the MacBook One, and then <laughs> Microsoft releases one with one port. It happens to be outdated. The only other port is a proprietary one, which is an Apple move, and uh, it gets headlines like, uh, "Here's the laptop, the Apple's Apple's uh, or Microsoft's MacBook killer that Apple can't ignore." 
And it's, it gets it gets funnier after that because it is running KB Lake, which is a generation beyond what Apple uh, ran. And there's reasons for that. The, the quad core version of KB Lake wasn't ready when Apple needed it. The the graphics that Apple wanted, the more powerful graphics, were not available when Apple wanted to put them into the MacBook Pro. And this, in fact, doesn't have those sorts of graphics options. So it, uh, Microsoft made a different choice. They went with a better CPU, but arguably a much worse GPU. But at the same time, there's eight gigabytes and 16 gigabytes of RAM. But the 16 gigabyte version doesn't ship for months. And can you imagine if Apple announced the new MacBook Pros we went to in October? and said, oh, by the way, a 16 gigabyte version is not going to ship for a few months. Uh, and I also think I went through the configuration on it because there was also some initial uh, Twitter feedback that I saw where it was that, that it shows how overpriced the MacBook Pros are. And I found the exact yeah. opposite yes. where I configured one with a Core i7, uh, 16 gigs of RAM, and a 512 megabyte SSD. And the price was twenty one ninety nine, and a MacBook with Core i seven and sixteen gigs of RAM and a five hundred twelve gigabyte SSD was twenty one ninety nine, the exact same price twenty one ninety nine for both. Facts, John. Uh, <laughs> and Apple offers a one terabyte yeah. SSD. Microsoft doesn't, and Apple will let you get a sixteen gigabytes of RAM configuration in the Core i five variant of the MacBook Pro. And Microsoft doesn't. If you want to get 16 gigs of RAM, you've got to also upgrade to the Core i7. And I'm personally, me personally, I've actually totally changed my my personal take on uh, 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 laptops. Where for me, I think the, the, the I'm podcasting from it right now. I have a 2015 or is it 2014? Jeez, I don't even remember. MacBook Pro, 13 inch MacBook Pro. Let's see what they say in here. I don't even remember. So, um, I my my take for years. Oh, mid twenty fourteen. So yeah, it's a late twenty fourteen MacBook Pro, thirteen inch. It's one of the best computers I've ever owned. Mm-hmm. Um, I maxed out everything when I bought it. I got the three, three gigahertz Intel Core i seven. I got the sixteen gigs of RAM, which is the most I could get, and I got the one terabyte SSD. And I'm happy with all those decisions because I've got a couple hundred. Uh, gigabytes left, but mm-hmm. way more than five twelve. I'm like seven hundred or something like that. So I need the the one terabyte was useful to me. I I would love RAM is the biggest thing I need uh, because I'm lazy and I have I always keep yes. lots of Safari tabs open and Slack takes Slack itself even if you run it as an app takes like a gigabyte of RAM. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think I need a Core i7. I think, and I, I thought this I, when I was testing, and I had a couple of the review units of the the new MacBook Pros from from October. Uh, there's nothing I do on a daily day to day basis where having a Core i7 instead of a Core i5 really makes a difference. I don't use Xcode, or if I do, I do it rarely enough that it, the difference in build times. I'm not doing it all day, mm-hmm. all day long, where shaving some time off the the build and run cycle would really make a difference. Um, other things I do that might be like batch processing, it doesn't matter to me because it's running in the background. You know, it, it, the difference between a Core i5 and Core i7, performance wise, isn't meaningful to me personally. And the Core i5 is going to get better battery life. And that yeah. actually is, that's more important to me. So I think the next time I get a MacBook Pro, I'd get a Core i5 uh, that would get better battery life and it's way more than fast enough. And then just max out the SSD and the RAM. And Microsoft won't let you do that. And I find that to be a very useful configuration. 
I have the exact same MacBook Pro that you have from before, the exact same configuration, and I came to the exact same conclusion about this one. And in fact, I can't mention any names, but someone who knows uh, those chipsets inside and out just told me point blank, don't give Intel the extra money. (laughs) (laughs) I I really... I I believe that. I really do. And it's not so much that the, there's anything wrong with the Core i7, but that the Core i5 is just good enough. And yeah. I really do on that curve. Uh, and I think that's why Apple has wisely made it the default, even on the pros. Um, it's not just that it's more expensive, but that it's really, it's a good, even for someone with who needs a high, perf- you know, relatively on the scale of all of Apple's MacBooks, a higher performance model that MacBook Pro with a Core i5 is a good one. So anyway, and for I, that money, you get an extra port. I mean, you're not just getting one port yeah. with MacBook Pro. Uh, so anyway, I, I do find that interesting on the surface. Uh, yeah. I'll give them kudos. I don't think it looks like a MacBook Air. I think it's obviously. I think Apple has largely defined the modern laptop in a way that there are some basic fundamental similarities to the MacBook the Air. The wedgy design. Yeah, the wedge design is certainly one. Um, but I don't think that's the sort of thing that even me as somebody who's relatively sensitive to people ripping off MacBooks, I don't think that's something that they can that they could lay ownership to. You know, it's it, even sort of like Tim Cook mentioned this, I think, when at the event last last year when they the when they introduced the MacBook Pros, when they went through all of Apple's portables from the beginning of the I like from the, at least from the first PowerBook. I think they skipped the Mac portable. <laughs> Yeah. But all the ones that you would identify as a laptop, like the Mac Portable was portable, but wasn't a laptop. Um, like it seems crazy now, but Apple was the first one who put the keyboard back so that you have palm rests yeah. in front. All previous laptops had the keys right up to the front of the device. And, you know, so the fact, I, I just think that's just something that when you see it, you're like, oh, well, that's an obvious way to do it. I think that an the wedge. Optimized design, yeah. Right. I think the wedge shape of the MacBook Air is an obvious way to shave weight off off a device where only some of the components need need the full thickness at the back. And if you can make it thinner in the front, you might as well. So I, I don't hold that against them. Like at a glance, you don't look at it and you wouldn't look at that and think that's a MacBook Air. I did, but I, you know, but I'm, I'm willing to concede the point. Uh, they I, used I watched to, the video because the video again is very similar to Apple design language, and you see that computer opening up, and if you squint a little bit, you can't tell the difference. All right, and they do. You know, they obviously took a lot of pride in the video, and yeah. and it is an Apple style video, but it's there's a lot of pride in the internals too. That yes, they show the um, what would you call it the the. Uh, it's obviously done in in CGI, but yeah. the, the the computer the renders yeah coming apart that the the different yeah. parts of it are are. You know, and the little screws and everything going in. Uh, kind of worse too. They've gotten much. I mean, from a, for a software company, they've gotten remarkable hardware chops over the last few years. Well, it's funny though. They've always had a good reputation for making like mice and keyboards, yes. right? That the, the yeah. mice, Microsoft mice and keyboards have ever since they got into the business have had reputation as world class. You know, but the Xbox line, not so much. No, <laughs> probably red not. rings and squeaky boxes, and, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, they you know and. I, I even like the way that the I, I think is it the Windows logo or the Microsoft logo the four rectangles thing the Windows logo yeah is that what it is it's you know it looks good it's you know they've finally gotten it to a point where it's reduced to a, a real icon uh, they, well, it's probably the de facto Microsoft logo by now because I think they use it everywhere it, it they're using a different material they've got like a a soft touch uh, 
uh, forget the name of it. There's a brand name that I wasn't familiar with, but yeah, it's acetyl it, something. Yeah, it's some kind of like fake leather type. Yeah, artificial synthetic it's leather. It's leather. What astroturf is to grass or something. Um, yeah, but that it's used by you know premium luxury yeah. automakers for components and car. You know, like the dashboards of cars or stuff like that. Um, so it's supposedly a great material. Uh, would be will be interesting to see how it wears. And you might yeah. think, hey, well, duh, of course it's going to wear well. Why would they use it if it doesn't wear well? But you know, then huh. you think about the remember the iPod Touch that. Yep. <laughs> that was, yes, sir. Well, what not iPod Touch? It was an iPod yeah. Nano or something that was like you could be scratch it with your fingernail. Yeah. No. Totally. You can't. It's hard to. There's no amount of Q and A that can prepare you for a million customers hitting your right. product. So we'll see. But that's a that's new. I don't I don't recall ever seeing a premium laptop that was. It's something other than aluminum or, uh, you know, plastic as the surface. Uh, yeah, they said they wanted it to be less sterile, to be less cold, to be more like a warmer feeling. I just thought, oh, that's going to pick up a lot of stains and a lot of dirt. At least the lighter we'll colors would, I yeah. would think. I don't know. Um, but there, I mean, the argument, I guess, is that it's going to patina like a good leather. I don't know. But which it's, is a fancy way of saying a stain. Yeah, but it's weird though. I think things that patina by touch are different than things yeah. like if you have like a leather watch strap yep. or a leather belt, it will get get a patina over time, but it doesn't look like too sweaty palm prints. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. You know, it's coming from use as opposed to coming from just sweat on two spots. <laughs> right. Right on the palm rest. And those are heavily used. I mean, that's heavy traffic area. Yeah. So we'll see, you know, but, but give them credit for something original. Yeah. Uh, and looks pretty good. But I don't think the price is all that compelling. I mean, I don't think it's bad, but I don't, I, I don't get the argument that it makes Apple's MacBook pricing look out of line. No, like the, the, the one thing you could criticize Apple for is that at $99, uh, $999, they do not have a Retina computer. The, the MacBook Air is still a non-Retina machine, although it does have an available, a wider variety of ports than this machine does. But right. for people who, wa- who always wanted a Retina MacBook Air, the MacBook, is, MacBook Pro Escape is not quite that, and this is closer. Right. Right. And that is the take. You know, there were a couple of tweets along the lines of, you know, this is the MacBook Air that Apple, the Retina MacBook Air that Apple never made. Uh, and you can kind of see that and, and, you know, squint your eyes and that's sort of basically what it is. It's the wedge shape. It's 13 inches display. It has a retina display. It's got the Core i5 and Core i7 chipsets as opposed to the Intel M3, M5, and mm-hmm. 7 chips that, that the MacBook has. Um, yeah, which I still don't like. I mean, whenever those chips see my iPad Pro, they just cry. <laughs> it's, you know, that's the truth. I mean, for people who don't pay attention to those specs, and I know some of, you know, some of you people listening, you obviously do, but I think a lot of you probably don't. But, you know, the the MacBook, the one port MacBook that we have today is very, very, very similar conceptually to the original when the iPod Air, when the iPad Air, yeah. not iPad Air, MacBook Air first came out, where it was not priced based on performance. Right. That's yes. the, you know, that, and, and in traditional computer thinking, you spend more to get a faster computer and you spend less and you get a slower computer by some, you know, by some me- multiple measures often of speed, IO, CPU, graphics, you name it. You spend more, you get faster, you spend less, you get slower. And the MacBook Air was a, a dramatic ex- exception to that, where the MacBook Air was a lot more expensive and a lot slower, but what you got was something remarkably thinner and lighter. 
you know, famously taken out of a, a manila envelope by Steve Jobs on stage to announce it to gasps, yeah. outright gasps from the audience. Like the appeal was immediate. But in terms of how is it priced, it was very different. It was a premium priced product, even though the performance was far behind a MacBook Pro, like far less expensive computers. The MacBook today is sort of like that. The difference isn't as dramatic. It's not super expensive. You know, I think, what does it start at? $1299? And, yeah. and a reasonable config is, I, I would say, around $1,500, $1,600. Um, but it's slower than a $999 MacBook Air. Yeah, and I think it, it's also... If you actually look at that computer, the components that Apple used in it are expensive. And it's, it's a really bad analogy, but they delivered futuristic computer technology in the present. And that's always expensive. And I remember sort of asking, like, why it was this price. And it seemed overpriced. And I got this aghast sort of look. And then I got a, a, a very behind the scenes rundown of what actually went into making it. Like, that display is incredibly sophisticated. And a lot of technology they had to invent to make the computer the way it is is incredibly expensive and sophisticated. And you could argue that they don't need to do that kind of thing. And I think we'll see that. That again with the iPhone 8 when it ships that it's going to be more expensive than the current iPhones but because the technology they're putting in it would otherwise not come to market for a couple of years and that's the cost of bringing that stuff forward sooner so you really I, we're skipping ahead but you really think that they're going to they're going to ship an, an iPhone Pro or X or 8 or something that actually raises the prices from the current iPhone 7 and seven plus prices. Yeah, I think the seven. I mean, I think they saw that there's price elasticity when they made the iPhone seven plus uh, twenty bucks more than the right. previous iPhone seven. Sorry, the previous iPhone plus, uh, and that's going to carry forward. And when they start introducing things like it's always a balancing act. If we want to put something like distance charging in, if we want to put a much better camera system in, if we want to put much better screen technology, all these things have a cost, and they'll come down over time. But if we do it today, it's going to be this price. If we do it next year or the year after, it's going to be this price. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, I think they're going to gamble and say we can afford to test the upper limit of iPhone uh, pricing. Yeah, and the other factor that comes into that is that they can they can not have to bank on having 70 million of those components in the first Oh, three yeah, months. it controls demand. When the price is higher, less people want it, and then you, the, the constraint supplies don't matter as much. Right. I think if that's going to be their strategy with the iPhone, which I don't think, I don't think they would call the iPhone 8. I really yeah. don't. I think they would call the iPhone Pro but or the iPhone something. And... Because I think I – think, and then if they also have iPhone 7S and iPhone 7S Plus that stay at these same prices we know today and just do a typical S upgrade, which is often, if not usually, a better upgrade component-wise than the non-S years, um, I think calling the new one the iPhone 8 makes the iPhone 7S look older – than it would if they gave it a non-numbered name. Like or I think iPhone, iPhone Edition was the other. Right. It's funny because MacBook was MacBook Stealth originally, and then they just went with MacBook. And, right. You know, so they can play around with those things until they just they make a last-minute decision. Right. And those things the leak the least because that's the yeah you know they don't print the names on the devices so they don't come out of the you know like you look on the back of your iPhone Seven it doesn't say iPhone Seven it just says yes. iPhone iPhone. Um, and so that you know it's just a small number of product marketing people who do not do not leak. Uh, yeah. And they so anyway, that stuff around for a while. Uh, anyway, uh, back to back to the Surface laptop. Uh, the other thing, so the other uh, the flip side of the event was the software, which was Windows 10 yeah. S, which is uh, and again the comparisons were all to Apple. Apple was so it, it's fascinating to me as somebody who's been following this stuff obsessively, <laughs> you know, for my you know I was a teenager. Uh, it is absolutely fascinating to me how central Apple is 
to this entire announcement, both yes. software. Everything was compared. Everything on the hardware was compared to the MacBook, and everything software was compared to uh, iOS and macOS. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the big news, I, so Windows 10s. It's a, a cut down version of Windows 10, and it is iOS style in some ways, where uh, apps can only come from the Windows App Store. Uh, and to get out of that, it's not like the Mac where you can click a checkbox and you know there's or there's a radio button in the Mac in the security yeah. thing where you can choose the gatekeeper switch. Allow, yeah, the gatekeeper switch. Allow apps only from the App Store or allow apps from the App Store and from um, known identified developers. Um, and you can also, you know, even with that checked, you can also use apps from unsigned developers, mm-hmm. but you have to be nerdy enough to know that to open them by not just by double clicking them. You have to like control click and choose open or use the gear menu in the finder just to uh, double ensure that you know exactly what you're getting into in terms of using an app from an untrusted developer. So you can do that on the Mac. The, the Windows 10S is like iOS where the old, there is no option. There are no options like that. There's no options to get apps from sideload apps from outside the store from known developers, and certainly no options to to get unsigned apps. Yeah, you have to pro your way out of it. It's a huge, huge deal. I mean, it's the sort of thing that, like, if Microsoft had tried it ten years ago, would have <laughs> would have had antitrust. Well, regulators. that was a suspicion. Like uh, when the Mac App Store was first announced, there was a, a whole bunch of people who panicked immediately and said that we're one step away from Apple locking down the Mac the way they locked down iOS. And this is just the first stage. And Apple has thus far not done it at all. And it's it's interesting that Microsoft got there first. Right. Uh, because that's everybody's fear. And 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 I highlighted a tweet on during Fireball from Dieter Bone of The Verge yeah. who said that uh, you know, Apple, you know, Microsoft's the first to, sh- I, I might be paraphrasing, but Microsoft's the first, uh, Microsoft ships a completely locked down computer before Apple, odd. Um, which I thought was interesting just because it's, you know, when he's talking about a computer, it's clear that what he means is that he only thinks of Macs as real computers and not iPads because the iPad's been out since 2011 and has been locked down the exact same way the whole time. Yeah. Uh, other changes that they've done that are even tighter than Apple's iOS restrictions in some ways are um, uh, with web browsers. You mm-hmm. can download other web browsers, but only from the store. And Chrome is not in the store. It was at one point, so it might return. But my understanding, I poked, asked around, was more or less that when Microsoft went to Google and said, hey, with the version of Chrome in the Windows App Store, you're turning it into Chrome OS, you know, that it was, you know, had its own app store. It did again, circling yeah. back to our discussion yes. of Apple and apps that have quote unquote apps within apps, they were like, knock it off. And so rather than sort of take out that Chrome OS style integration of quote apps within Chrome, Google just took their ball and went home. Yeah. Um, but even if you do, even if you do get a uh, browser from the, their app store, you can't set it as your default. So like an, an email, if you get an email with a URL in it and click it, it's always going to open an edge. And and here's the part that it would have been so much more interesting if they had done this years ago and if they had done it in Windows itself is the search feature in Edge uh is Bing and only Bing, and you have no yeah. other options. So unlike, let's say, even iOS, which is pretty locked down, you can uh, you get Google Search by default still, but you have the option for Bing, Yahoo, and DuckDuckGo. Yeah, it's 
uh, I mean, it's hard to take things away from people. And I think the expectations are different. With, with iOS, the expectation has always been that you've never been able to have third-party rendering engines, which means like, you know, you've never been able to, you've always been able to change your, your default browser. And with Microsoft, in this, they're calling this Windows. It feels like Windows. It looks like Windows. Those features now feel taken away. You, you've taken away my ability to get Chrome. You've taken away my ability to search with Google rather than being a feature of the operating system. Yeah, it's interesting to see. I, I'm intrigued to see how it plays out because I don't know who the market is for this exactly. And there is an option, last but not least, there's an option where you can get this. You could get, if you buy any, I guess any of these Windows 10S devices, uh, if you pay 50 bucks, you can upgrade to Windows 10 Pro. But it's clear, it's not just like you're paying 50 bucks to toggle a checkbox, like yeah. you're changing the OS in certain ways. You it's know, not it like is, Gatekeeper where you can turn it off, download the app you want, turn it back on. It's not like you can download Windows Pro, right. get Chrome, turn and right. re-go to, to Windows S. You know, and I, I don't know enough about Windows to, to say for sure, but it's clear that this the difference between Windows 10S and Windows 10 Pro is more like it's two different versions of Windows 10, and there's obviously a lot of shared stuff in there. And it's not not like the difference between iOS and macOS, where it's two entirely different operating systems. Yeah. Um, One Windows. But they did advertise repeatedly during the event that Windows 10S, like there is, you know, that these, the they don't call it, I forget what they call it, but they don't call it sandboxing, but there's the equivalent idea of sandboxing where apps from the Windows Store, um, you know, have, have are can't do it like the old days where you can do it, you know, right all over the file system yeah. and add DLLs, you know, to the system level, blah, blah, blah. Um, they repeatedly said that as you use a Windows 10S device over time, it won't slow down, which is, yeah. you know, I, I, again, I haven't used Windows on a regular basis in, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, but it was always true. And as far as I have heard recently, it's still true that if you, you know, people can't, nobody who's like an expert Windows user gets a Windows machine and four years later is still using it without having reinstalled at some point just to clean out the gunk. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it's super interesting to me, the, the, a lot of the choices that they made with this operating system. Um, and are they competing? It's, it's clear they're competing with Apple in some aspects, but they're also competing with Chrome. Uh, and Chrome OS and the growth of Chrome OS in schools and Chrome OS is the virtue is like the Chromebooks are super super cheap. Chrome OS is essentially free. Uh, Chrome services, Google services are essentially free. Makes it an e- incredibly easy to manage environment, which education you know schools everybody loves. Uh, and is Windows S really an answer to that? Is it a, a way to get a super cheap free version of Windows onto a bunch of super cheap, really inexpensive laptops? I think the Surface laptop aside, a lot of the third-party um, Surface laptop-style machines will be much less expensive. But that, that brings with it a whole other se- sense of, or sorry, a whole other set of concessions or compromises. I get the impression that at a, at a practical level and from their business, what they really need to be concentrating on is Chrome and Chromebooks. Mm-hmm. And in you know they announced that they through their nothing Microsoft branded but through their partners OEMs like I think Acer and yeah. a couple of others that they're coming out with one hundred eighty nine dollar notebooks that run Windows ten s which is you know pretty pretty good price point and clearly you know very specifically the the event was education themed marked at the education uh, uh, market uh, the the Surface laptop is clearly not aimed at the uh, that part of the education yeah. market, the tray full of laptops for kids to, you know, uh, grade school kids to 
get as they come in the school school. There is though, you know, it's sort of, it's still quote unquote education, but it's, there's the like teenagers who are going to own their own computer for high school and college. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, that's where Apple thrives, right? Like, so Apple, because their prices are so much higher and because Chrome, you know, for various reasons, Chrome has really, really taken off in the classroom education market. Um, uh, yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see if it repeats. Because when I was young, there was, you know, a lot of us had Apple computers, but you'd go to schools and sometimes they would have uh, PC computing labs because they were cheap. And all you'd hear is kids go, ah, oh, I hate this. My Mac at home is so much nicer. And I wonder if we're going to get to the point where because schools, you know, are, are regimented the way that they are, there's a bunch of cheap Windows S and probably a lot more Chromebooks. And kids will go in and go, ah, oh, this is not like the iPad I have at home. You know, I hate it. And that sort of builds a whole separate cliche, uh, cache where maybe Apple isn't as competitive in the schools anymore, but they're super competitive in the homes with this with the same sort of population yeah i think it's definitely true as the father of a seventh grader um and in seventh grade it's a little different but in in the lower grades just in the last few years uh at jonas's school most of the computers that they had access to were chromebooks um and the kids hated them but they were not hated them but they 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 didn't really see them as something desirable. Hate's a wrong word, but they more or less were just, they were just Google Docs machines, really. That's really all they were. And, you know, I guess they do some research on, you know, web browsers, but they're just literally just used for searching the web for some amount of research and for, you know, writing. If you had a written assignment, you'd do it in Google Docs and it saves to a folder where the teacher can get it. Um, and they're kind of junky and they're kind of squeaky and they're kind of mushy. <laughs> it's just like, right. I've asked, cause Mike Rock is the same way. They have Chrome at, at school now. So they went all in on it, but they have iPads at home and they can tell, like it's not, they don't put it in those terms, but they can tell that it just feel like a sub, like they're not the same experience. Right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I totally understand it from the school's perspective yep. because I don't, you know, that I don't think, you know, you don't want, uh, more expensive, you know, the price is a huge issue and the durability is a huge issue. And if you can combine it and have a device that at least is reasonably rugged and even if it does break, it's only $180 to replace or whatever, I totally get it. But, but the kids, like the mindshare of the kids on what they actually use and wanted to use was, you know, uh, in their own time was iPhones really. I think that's an important part of the discussion in the overall education market. Yeah. Um, but the Surface laptop clearly is is aimed. I, I feel like, um, from a business sense, App, Microsoft really needs to stem the the growth of Chromebooks. They need that market. Mm-hmm. They need that. You know, their their business is set up on the assumption that all of these low end machines will be running Windows, and we'll figure out a way to make money, even if the margins are really low. That that's you know that Windows everywhere strategy is important to them. I feel like it's more of a psychological pride thing that they are. And for years now, it's not just with the Surface Laptop, but that they've sort of been, not even sort of, that they've been outright gunning for the MacBook in advertising with their products, right? They had a whole ad campaign based on the, I I forget the name of their products, but I think it's the Surface Book. Surface Pro and the Surface Or the Surface Pro. I don't know, but it's Surface Pro was the first one that was the convertible tablet, and then Surface Book was the laptopy convertible. Right. So the laptopy convertible. There's an ad campaign that was pretty big where they ran, and the whole thing was based on can't do this on a MacBook, and it's usually just drawing or touching the screen. Yeah. Um, Trying to make that look. We've made a high quality laptop, and it has a touchscreen. 
trying to make that into an and differentiating issue and they they mentioned you know in that campaign they mentioned macbooks specifically and nothing else i mean and they can't really mention anything else because it's not targeted at chromebooks it's a very di- it's a, these are different class machines these are like the $1000 range machine uh and they can't piss off their oems by talking about other windows laptops yeah, but it feels like Microsoft is caught in a hard it's, it's sort of caught in the middle right now and you have Apple at one side and Google at the other side and, and Microsoft is sort of running back and forth between them not really certain of its own identity sometimes competing with Microsoft with uh, Google sometimes with Apple and I don't want to bring up the toaster fridge thing but I think it's an apt description of it's sort of cha- it sort of botches your focus with products because you you're, you're no, you don't have your own clear destination you're sort of like what Apple's doing over here what Google's doing over here and you're meshing them together and I think that's sort of the disconnect that I see in the surface book yeah, uh, Surface Laptop. Well, and the other thing too is that they they tried to make some hay at the end of last year in the wake of the mixed reviews of the mm-hmm. new MacBook Pros, um, and, and it said you know this is the end of 2016 that they that that I forget if they said their Surface in particular or you know that the premium market which is defined as like yeah. 9.99 and up for laptops that they're taking share away from Apple in that market um and there were a couple of statements that they had but it was all Bezos numbers where they didn't yes. give specific numbers or sources and just said it um but the actual numbers that have been released and were released since then don't bear that out. Mm-hmm. Apple's Mac sales have been up. And again, Apple doesn't in their numbers release the split between notebooks and desktops, but there's no reason to believe that their desktop sales are up because their best-selling one, the iMac is yeah. over a year old and their other ones, the Mac pro and the Mac mini are uh, 17 and 23 years old re- respectively. And even in the best desktop year, the, the laptops dwarf, just right. dwarf the desktop sales. Uh, and so there's absolutely, you know, Apple's Mac sales are up in the last two quarters they've reported. So there's absolutely no sign that yeah. that Mac sales are down. And so if they're if if it's true that Windows PCs in the premium market have taken share from Apple, it doesn't make any sense because if, if Apple's sales are up, technically it would be possible if the overall market were yes. growing so fast that they could take share away, even though Apple's still growing by outgrowing it. But absolutely no, nobody yes. is reporting that premium Windows laptop sales are a growing part of the market. In fact, everybody's reporting that there's, that it's a shrinking part of the market, yeah. not collapsing, but you know, like a slowly deflating tire. Yes. <laughs> and there's no Perfect. sign of that. Uh, there's no sign of that uh, abetting. Yeah, and it's it's funny uh, that again going back to the Apple Watch thing. The Apple Watch is considered beleaguered, is considered doomed, and a lot of the re- the the angles taken in the reports where Surface was you know by no measure selling well. We had no idea what it was selling, but it was being ballooned. It was being propped up. There were headlines all over the place saying how like the resurgence of, of the Windows laptop. Uh, and the coverage of the numbers you talked about that had no backing from Microsoft, as far as I can tell, though, that was pretty extensive. And the coverage of the Surface not doing well has not been similarly no. extensive. Right. They've just announced that the you know, sales are not, – not again, not collapsing, but the Surface sales were down pretty significantly in the last quarter yeah. that they reported. So I don't see that happening. Um, all right. Let me take a break here and thank – our third and final sponsor of the show. It's our good friends at Audible. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and 
and this is pretty new to them, original audio shows. They've got news, comedy, and more. Their own audio shows. Uh, you get an account, you sign up, and you get access to all of it. You get a 30-day free trial if you go to audible.com slash talk show. If you want to listen to it, whatever it is for you, Audible has it. They've got audio books from virtually every genre, anytime, anywhere. And you can play their audio books on phones, tablets, computers, most Kindles even, uh, your iPod, you can sync it to your computer. Uh, anything you can listen to digital content on, you can listen to Audible stuff on. It's great for flights. It is great for long road trips. It is great for your daily commute. Anywhere where you listen to podcasts, like wherever you are right now listening to me tell you about this, great spot to listen to Audible content when you run out of episodes of my show and the other shows that you like to listen to. They've even got something that they call the Great Listen Guarantee. If you start an audio book from Audible and you don't like it, you get bored, it's not what you thought, you can exchange it for another one for free so you can't lose. Check it out and listen for yourself. If you don't have an Audible account, but you like listening to podcasts, you're missing out. You're, you're in the market for more Audible content. Begin your 30-day free trial at audible.com slash talk show. No the, just slash talk show. My thanks to Audible. Uh, I should point out when I say about, when I talk about the coverage, I, I don't mean that Apple should be given a free ride on these things. I think it's the same thing as like when Touch ID is considered a disaster at launch, but the, the botched facial recognition is fine. I think everybody should be scrutinized to the level that Apple is. It's not that they should give Apple a break, but they should hold everybody to that same standard because as a consumer, I want to know all that stuff when I make my decision on what I want to yeah. buy next. And I feel like I'm being underserved right now because I hear every little, all the hot takes about Apple and everything else sort of just skates by. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's worth talking about. The, the 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 elephant in the room of Apple's MacBook lineup is the MacBook Air because it's I think it's I think I checked today. I think it's 788 days since they updated the the specs. So it's 2 years old. It still costs 9.99. It doesn't have a Retina screen. And and you know, uh, it, I it's it's the existence of that product that gives rise to the hey, Microsoft just put out this thing and it makes the MacBook lineup yeah. look Overpriced. I don't think that's true. If you look at the if you look at the MacBook and you know the MacBook One port, I don't even though it. I think we're probably due for an update on that because the last one came out a year ago. Um, But a year is not an unreasonable period of time to wait for an update. So if we get one at WWDC, I would say right on time. Um, MacBook Pros obviously just came out last fall, Uh, and I think are you know I don't buy the argument that they're overpriced. I think for what they are, they are correctly priced, even though at certain price points, that means that getting a quote-unquote new MacBook Pro has a higher price. It's um, the price of a MacBook Pro plus the Apple Watch that's essentially embedded inside it. Right, exactly. And and, and I think that the if you spec things out, like when I did the comparison to the, um, to the Surface laptop, what I was configuring it against, I don't think I mentioned this, I was configuring it against the new MacBook Pro with the buttons, mm-hmm. not the touch bar, because that's to me the most apt comparison. Like to me, that is the MacBook Air with Retina that everybody claims that they want Apple to make. The MacBook Air with 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 a Retina screen is the new MacBook Pro that doesn't yes. have the touch bar. I think Phil Schiller said as much when he introduced it. Yeah, I, I and and he well. Yeah, it's so much in so many ways by comparing it to the size and weight and thickness yeah. of a MacBook Air, which it compares very favorable, you know, it, it matches up with and it's way faster and has a beautiful screen and et cetera. Um, 
but the MacBook Air is old and is sitting there at nine ninety nine and doesn't have a Retina screen. And you know, not arguing, but just having a very very nice debate with people on Twitter about it recently. Like Marco Arment on Twitter made the point, and it's hard to argue with that in twenty seventeen Apple should not be selling any device that has a display that's not Retina caliber yeah. in terms of resolution. And I agree with that. In theory, it that's it's too it's twenty seventeen is too late to still be selling a brand new product that. Brand new meaning that you're buying it out of the box and yes. it's factory sealed. Not, Full price retail, yeah. Right. Um, I think it's, you know, the non-Retina MacBook Air is like the new 16 gigabyte iOS device. Yeah. I, I can't defend it. I'm, I think it's, I, I would recommend against it. I, if somebody asked me if they should buy one, I would say no. And that would be the reason why. I think why. that's what you pointed out so well with the Mac Pro thing is that Apple doesn't have a game plan for this. It's like if we don't have something new to announce and we're not canceling it, it just stays at exactly the same price in the right. catalog. Because they want to keep something at that nine ninety nine yeah. price that is a Mac laptop, but they feel like they can't sell the MacBook One port at that price yet yeah. and still keep the margins they want. Um, you know, I think what they're doing is waiting and and I don't know if it's this year. I don't. I have no inside information. But my theory is what they will do is eventually they'll have an updated, state of the art MacBook, just plain MacBook, yeah, and put the year old just plain MacBook at a, a lower price point until it gets to nine ninety nine, and then at that point the MacBook Air goes away. Yeah, and I'll be a little sad if they stick to the the uh, Intel Core M platform for that because it, it just it's not the same. Either it's that, fanless. It's fanless, which is great, but it just. Well, it, I don't know how they get out of that though, because I don't. Yeah. You, you can't use a core. I don't. I don't know. You know. I think you're. I think you're stuck waiting for the for the the M series to get fast enough that yeah. you don't mind. I mean, and it yeah, can happen. I, right. I mean, you know, the the A10 is a fanless design, and you know, it's fast. That's the other thing that's sort of great about the MacBook is yes. that the iPad Pro, in in my opinion has a faster CPU. I think that the, you know, the single core Geekbench scores are a reasonable, you know, I realize that they don't correlate exactly to real world use. No, and they're purpose built. So the two things that you note right off the bat is that Apple can build those cores exactly for what they want. So they can have super fast uh, single threaded operations because that's what people hit when they do interface and stuff like that. But they can all, I remember the initial review unit I had for the second uh, generation MacBook, it could barely handle one stream of 4K while, while the, the A9, not even the A10 version of the iPad Pro, there is no A10 version yet. The A9 version of the iPad Pro could handle three streams of 4K because Apple built that chip exactly to do that. Right. And they don't have control over Intel. And Intel will do things like the A, as far as I can tell, the Core M3 is a, ho- a deliberately hobbled chip hmm. that maybe Apple shouldn't use. But Intel just makes it worse than the M5 just because they want a lower price point for that chipset. Yeah. So you know, there's uh, you know, there's a waiting game involved there. And because part of it, I think too, is like you just alluded to, is some a big part of it is out of Apple's hands where they're waiting for Intel. Um, and that opens the door to the whole mill. Well, maybe they'll go, you know, put an ARM chip, you know, their own custom ARM chip in a, in a Mac. They'll buy AMD. They have all this money. Right, or buy AMD. <laughs> um, and who knows? Who knows what they're thinking? Yeah. But it's, you know, switching to ARM on one model of Mac is a lot more complicated yes. than, than we have time to discuss. And I yes. don't think it's going to happen. And therefore, uh, you know, there might be something I don't foresee. There might be some way out of this, but basically they're waiting for Intel on that. So I don't know. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to say. And I, but I, I can totally see, I'd, I wouldn't also wouldn't recommend that Apple, you know, update the MacBook Air and put a retina screen in there. Yeah, it feels like there's something, and there were rumors of a device in between that was sort of a larger version. Like it was a 14 inch MacBook yes. or something. Yeah, that would have an extra happened port. to that. 
I the, it hasn't shipped. All right. There's no KB Lake version of the MacBook. There's no 14-inch version of the MacBook. There's right. just then the updated iMac's not here yet. Yeah. Yeah, the 14-inch MacBook was a weird that was a weird yeah. rumor that some people seem certain of and never shipped. Um Anyway, let's move on. Uh WWDC stuff. Yes. Uh, I just quickly want to say I am having a live show. It's announced. Uh, I people keep asking about tickets soon. Very, as you listen to this, it will be very soon. We are moving, um, but I don't have anything to announce yet. Um, uh, so patience. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, there are a couple of other events. I know that they're on the same web page on Apple's WWDC. That they're very, very. It's very, very nice of Apple to promote these yeah. alternative. Or I don't forget what they call them, but community events. Um, there is a CocoConf taking place in a hotel right adjacent to the convention center that where WWDC is. Uh, CocoConf is held a couple times a year. I've never been, but it, I have friends who've spoken there and have attended and, and swear up and down that it is an amazing conference. It's tw- like a 1299 conference for developers. Uh, are, they have a great speaker lineup. They'll be right there next to WWDC. So I, I would, I, I think CocoConf is a sort of a, a great plan B for people who wanted to go to WWDC and did lost the, the lottery for tickets. Um, so look into that if you're a developer and you want something like that. There's AltConf, which is also in a hotel adjacent to the convention hall. It, I've never been there, but it seems to me like there's two hotels that are literally connected to the convention center and that those hotels themselves have convention space. Yeah. Uh, and so one of them is a CocoConf. The other one is AltConf. AltConf is free. So that's a great option if, if you're not looking to spend money. Um, but I think it's also sort of developer oriented. And then last but not least, in fact, last, but probably the opposite of least is the layers conference, which is, uh, a great, great, great conference. It's more design-oriented. It's, yeah. it's not a developer conference. Um, so for those of you who aren't interested in design or, or in development, you're not coders, but you're a designer, it is a great conference. I was, uh, it was two years ago where I got to interview Susan Kerr, the yeah. designer of the original Macintosh icons and all the original Macintosh fonts, which is still maybe the... the uh, I can't believe I'm the most, I can't believe I'm doing this moment of my entire career. Like, you know, like having Phil Schiller on the talk show, or whatever is, was a thrill and meeting Steve jobs was a thrill. But for me personally, the not necessarily thrilling, but just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Interviewing Susan Kerr on stage was just absolutely amazing because she's just one of my favorite uh, designers of all time. Like literally got me, you know, it, it was as famous to me as Steve Jobs was at a very young age because I knew that she did all of this amazing work almost single-handedly on the original Mac, and it was all down to the pixel, just perfect. Um, that was great. But the speakers there, it's great, and it's so, so nice. Layers is just one of those conferences where it's like I cannot believe that once a year these people put together a conference where everything is so nice, and you get nice coffee, and it's a nice room and stuff like that. So I have a special deal for people who listen to the talk show. You go to layers.is, that's the website, uh, or you can just Google for Layers Conference, but the website is layers.is. Um, and if you use this code, you'll save 100 bucks on registration. And I know they're doing pretty well, I know that, but there's definitely still openings. Uh, and if you're going to go, if you're thinking about having an excuse to be in the WWDC area, um, during WWDC, you're going to want to book stuff. You know, now's the time to book so you get. You know, you're not making arrangements at the last minute. You will save a hundred bucks, 
And here's the code you can use that they'll know you came from me. This is not a sponsorship. This is something I'm doing as a friend to Jesse Char, who runs the conference. Um, and because I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. This isn't a sponsorship, but I just it's just a great conference. So you save 100 bucks. Here's the code, Martini. Use that code. Um, and I uh, worked it out. I had her test it. You can also get the same, you can get the same code, same discount, if you type the uh, Martini emoji. I dare you to try it. I think it'll perfect. work. Perfect. That's perfect. It is, isn't that perfect? I, yeah. I hope it works. So anyway, try show. that out. Layers.is. It is such a good conference, and it's such a great... I think it's going to be pretty exciting. I don't know. Who knows? This whole thing could be weird, but um, if you're thinking about it, if you're, if you're hoping to make last minute... I just talking to somebody else today who was like a, on the fence about whether they are going to be... You know, can they book? You know, get to San Jose for WWDC week? Uh, so I know that there's people out there who are still thinking maybe they will, maybe they won't. But if you want to have a good reason to be there, layers is a good, good, as good as anything. Yeah, and if you're a designer, it's a perfect compliment to WWDC because I know every year they try more and more to have more and more design sessions, and they have the design review labs. But it's really a developer show, and layers is such a great compliment to it. Yeah, and they, you know, I forget what else they do. Did the, the, there's uh, there's some integrations with WWDC where yeah. Apple people come and do talk about interface design and stuff like that. So check out their website. Yeah, it's all the infos. Also, I just love the Layers logo this year. <laughs> it is so great because it is sort of self-referential to the name where it's very design-looking. But it yeah. ha- anyway, check out their website, even if you're not interested in a conference, just to see the excellent graphic design. Uh, what else do you got? There was the... We, we didn't talk about it, but the... Uh, we mentioned it before, but we didn't go into yeah. it. The, the whole whole thing with Uber tagging iPhones. You can tell it's an interesting week for Uber when they have not one but two controversies on the same day. <laughs> what was the other one? I heard you had them both in your original write-up. I don't they remember. Were, yeah, it's, and now he's canceled his recode. I mean, it's right. just it's. Well, yeah. that was that had to happen. There was no way that he yes. could possibly get up there. I mean. Uh, it, it really, I, I, I almost wish what they should have done is like Kickstartered, like just like, all right, I'll do it, but we've got to like Kickstarter a million dollars <laughs> for you know App Camp for girls or some yes. some good cause like that. Like, can you imagine how much money you would have raised to get Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg to skewer him on stage? <laughs> oh my god! But anyway, the story came uh, out. Mike Isaac of the New York Times had a story in a profile of of. Uh, Kalanick, uh, the CEO of co-founder of Uber and mentioned that a couple of years ago, he got called in to, for a meeting with Tim Cook at Apple's camp conference or campus. And Cook confronted him with the fact that Apple had figured out that they were, and, and this is where the story was murky initially, where the initial version of the story that was up in the New York times in the morning said that they were tagging and tracking iPhones even after the app was deleted or even if the uh, OS was erased from the phone and reset. Um, and then the word tracking was taken out in a subsequent edit in the afternoon. But the, the, you know, the horses were out of the barn at that point yeah. where people were panicked. And part of it is rightfully fueled by, well, Uber has been caught with so many shady practices that if they could do that, of course they would. Like it, it, it passes the sniff test of yes, if it's Apple, believable, right? But there was no tracking. Meaning, you hear tracking phones, and you think, well, I had the Uber app, and if I have the Uber app, I, you know, it, it can use my location because that's how the car comes and gets you. Um, 
And so you hear that, and what people think is, well, I deleted the Uber app because I don't like the company. I've, I've used Lyft, or for whatever reason, they, they deleted the app. And the fear that Uber is still tracking them and mm-hmm. doing something like figuring out if they're using Lyft, even if you don't have the app. And you know, it's if you know iOS, you'd know, well, that sounds like it should be impossible because when an app is deleted, all you know, it's you can't do things like you could do on traditional PCs, like sneakily put a, a background process in a system directory. So even if your app is deleted, you've still got this remnant of you behind, you know, that's the whole point of these containers that apps ship in now is that when you delete the app as a user, just hold the app, make it jiggle, hit the X, anything it it could run on your phone is gone. Um, But that's not what they were doing. I think basically we're still not sure exactly what was going on, but basically they were quote unquote fingerprinting the phone and they were figuring out a way to get a, a uniquely identify a phone phoning that home to uber so they could store it yeah it's not like they were just essentially fingerprinting it and then using that fingerprint as a way to tell when when the same device was reaccessing the service right i lost my train of thought there but that's exactly right and it was to counter some sort of fraud that was going on in china where i think basically the story was that they had like a promotion to get people to start using uber where you could get a free ride if you're new to uber um and if you're a driver and you pick up one of these free rides, you still get the credit as a driver. They're not, you know, Uber's, the corporation is eating the free ride, not the drivers, because, you know, drivers would rightly revolt. So what drivers were doing is setting up some kind of scam where they would get stolen iPhones and configure them as new and put the Uber app on and get the free ride and pick them up. You know, like me and you could work as a team and I'll pick you up. Uh, with the free thing and drop you off and then you erase the phone and and put it on all over and pretend to be somebody new and get another free ride and i pick you up and you know somehow bilking them out of free rides like that um and so if they could uniquely identify the phone it would it would it i guess it did actually allow them to sort of block that sort of thing where they could tell hey this phone's collected free rides twice already forget it you know and and, uber is not the kind of company that lets regulations get in the way of them doing you know doing business right um so the basic story you know and again this is it it certainly did not seem to come from apple's side it seemed to more likely come from somebody on uber's side uh but the gist was that you know Tim Cook supposedly told him, "Hey, so knock it off," yeah. and they did. Oh, and the other thing that they had was that they somehow knew that Apple might look at this in app review, and they put uh, at Kalanick's request put a geofence around Apple's campus so that when the Uber app was running within you know X distance of Cupertino, it wouldn't do the fingerprinting. That's it's remarkable to me that a company that is such a based on such like geolocation technology would think you know not think about apple having other offices like well sunnyvale what are they doing oh san francisco what's happening with uber oh boston what, what's going on here it's, uh, it, it's i don't know if it's hubris or naivete or some mixture of both well both but i think hubris largely an arrogance um and and the outrage on Twitter, and you know, in a moral sense, it was correct. Was you know, why in the world did, does Uber does Kim, Tim Cook give Uber a hey, knock it off, uh, a slap on the wrist, and give them a chance to just remove this and stay in the App Store when uh, you know other apps? If if again, if me and you jointly together make an app, yeah. you know, or you know, put a new version of Vesper out, and it tags and identifies phones, they're just going to kick the app out of the app store. Um, I, I I get it. I see the, you know, in a certain 
moral sense, I see the argument there that, or a justice sense that that's, it doesn't seem fair that a small guy would get kicked out and a big company, let alone a big company full of jerks like Uber gets yeah. to stay in. But that's the way the world works, right? Like Uber has some, you know, ha- has more stature because it's mm-hmm. a super popular app that iPhone users use. And in some ways, yes, it's up, to, you know, Apple's doing the right thing by making, identifying this and making it stop. But our iPhone users as a whole, all, you know, however many hundred million of them there are, happier or sadder if Uber is literally kicked out of the App Store. Yeah, and Apple has to be, I mean, it's the same thing, the discussion we had with Facebook earlier, where Apple has to be pragmatic about these things. They have a certain amount of, uh, like, you have to weight these things. They can't all be done on a strict black and white scale, because that sounds great in the abstract, but doesn't work in life. And we make those decisions all the time. We, like, as much as we'll be upset that Apple's not doing things fairly or morally, we have the same problem when we're dealing with our client, or the same issues when we're dealing with different people in our lives. It's that, you know, the, these companies are all not, they're not equal. They're companies which Apple is beholden. They're companies to which Apple has absolutely no interest in. And they're companies where maybe Uber is like this, where they sort of both need each other. And it would be devastating for Uber to be off of the iPhone, but it would hurt Apple considerably to have Uber off the iPhone as well. Yeah, I think, and I don't know, you know, I don't know the backstory on this. I don't even know how much of it is, you know, exactly what happened. It's all from this one Mike Isaac story, and it doesn't seem like anybody's gotten a follow-up. But what I would have liked to have seen is not for Apple to have kicked Uber out of the store. I really, from a pragmatic standpoint, I understand why that, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it might have happened if Kalanick had said to Tim Cook, screw you, we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a certain, you know, all right, you, you know, you get called into the principal and maybe the principal gives you another chance, but you can't give the principal the finger, right? Yeah. Um, but I think what Apple, what I would have liked to seen them do, if everything that we know about this, if we think we know about the story is true, is I think that they should have made Uber disclose what they'd been doing in exact detail and say, here's the information we were collecting about phones. Uh, here's how we did it. And, you know, you know, you have our word that we've deleted our database of these identifiers. Yeah. I mean, and it's, if it's... they refuse, then I think Apple should have disclosed it. I, the part that is, doesn't sit right with me from what Apple did is that Apple knew that they were doing this. They knew yeah. that their customers had had their phones fingerprinted by Uber and Apple was apparently willing to, um, to let that go unknown. I mean, there's a chance that maybe Apple did do something, which is that maybe Apple, somebody at Apple was the source for Mike Isaac for that story. And that yeah. by leaking that, that was their way of disclosing that that's what Uber had done. Uh, but I would have liked to have seen them do it in a way that's on the record. Even if it was Apple, who was somebody at Apple who was the anonymous source for that, I, I still think that there should have been an, some sort of official acknowledgement that this went on. Even though I don't think it was all that gross of a privacy violation in the grand scheme of privacy violations. Yeah, so I think the, you know if, if Uber had been literally tracking people, I think it would have forced a, a much greater response from Apple or a much more public response from Apple because there's some offenses that are just so egregious that you, there's no other alternative. Right. But this to me is, and again, this is a horrible analogy, but if like Grenada does something the U.S. doesn't like, they can literally just drop in, take over the airport and do whatever they want. It right. doesn't work in Moscow. Right, right. It because is Because there's mutually assured destruction there. Right. Well, or, you know, and there maybe there's uh, other countries that are bigger that wouldn't be mutually assured destru- yeah. d- destruction. Like because, London. You can't just take the London airport. Right. Uh, well, pick a country without nukes, yeah. but, you know. Yeah. Australia, let's say. Yeah, okay. I, Sydney. <laughs> I don't know. Because our relations with Sydney, I don't know if you've heard, they're, they're a little rocky. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, that's not a bad analogy. That you know, yeah. you know Grenada is a little different than you know bigger countries. Um, yeah. I, I still, I just feel like they should have figured no, that out. Now, in you. the old days, this is the funny part: is you know, in the old days, in the innocent days of iOS, you know, it's just funny because it, 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 it's hard. I think it's hard for Apple people who work at Apple to even think from the perspective of like these ad networks that want to do all this tracking and stuff. But yeah. in the old days, there were APIs, official APIs, not like private APIs, but like it, the idea that you might want to uniquely identify a phone was like a feature. And it was only once that started getting abused by ad networks in privacy invasive ways that Apple, you know, deprecated and then removed those APIs. Yeah, but you could it, just take the UDID, right? And, and share yeah. it, I think, as you wanted to. Right. Like when you plug your phone into iTunes, iTunes can still see it. You see there's a yeah. unique device identifier. I think it's it printed on the back of the phone still in that small I print. So. I can't read it. It's too I don't small think so. for my eyes. But they used to sometimes, on some models, that they would print it on. But you can go to the settings screen in iOS and get the UDID. Um, you can get the Mac address. In other words, each Ethernet port in the world yep. has a unique Mac address that, that can uniquely identify a device. I mean, I remember in the old days when, <laughs> when that first started being used, and it wasn't all that reliable because people, you know, hack, you know, building their own PCs would take the Ethernet, you know, it was a card <laughs> that you could take out. And so, you know, you couldn't necessarily associate the Ethernet ID, the Mac ID with a device, but obviously nobody is changing the Mac ID of an iPhone. Um, there were all sorts of ways to uniquely identify a device that were officially supported, and Apple's one by one eliminated them all. Um, but it's you know it's obvious to anybody when Apple eliminated those things that figuring out a way around it to still get a unique identifier on a, on an iPhone was contrary to, to Apple's intentions. Like this is not a loophole; this was a direct circumvention. Yeah. You know, of a locked door. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, somebody leaves a door unlocked and you go in, you can maybe argue, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to go in, the door wasn't <laughs> locked. If you get to a door and it's locked, but you figure out a way to unlock it, <laughs> you have no excuse. Yeah, no, totally. And again, this is uh, Uber is famous, you know, and sometimes they've been applauded for their pugnacious, you know, uh, uh, combative, do what you want to do, ask, for, you know, don't ask for permission. And this is the flip side of that. Um, the other thing that rolled out of this story was sort of an aside in this Mike Isaac uh, 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 story about uh, Uber and this collection of data was that Uber had been one of the other, th you know, it's a, you know, <laughs> the greatest hits of all the shady stuff that they've done, but that they paid money to a company called Unroll Me. Um, or no, I guess the, who's the parent company of Unroll Me? And they slice slice analytics, yeah. and that's a company that's come up before in iPhone and Apple related products. Where slices this company that claims to have and does have access to people's in inboxes because they offer these services where they they let people sign up and get some kind of rewards in exchange for slice getting to see their incoming email, um, which again sounds <laughs> crazy yeah. to me that you you know, but uh, you know some people you know have different people yeah they, people do not see the value of their data the right. way they see the value of their cash or their time despite right. the fact that these companies will spend unlimited amounts of time and uh, money just to get your data the slice has come up before where they've they've used this data to come out and, and make projections about yeah. what what iphones people have bought and how it compares year over year because their customers last year got so many uh iphone receipts in their email in the first 72 hours since it went on sale and this year it's this and that 
Uh, and so I, you know, my mention of them previously is I don't really, you know, it's interesting. I don't think it's complete noise, but I don't trust data when it only comes from people who've signed up for a service that lets uh, internet marketing firm read all of your email. But they they bought a company called Unroll Me. Um, that offers a service that again you filter all your email through them and they make it easy to uh like unsubscribe from things you can unsubscribe to or to put all of your uh not spam but like you know newsletter type things that would have an unsubscribe me link at the bottom put them all together in a folder or collapse them or something like that um and these bastards it turns out were then selling it they sold so they sold information to Uber that using their their access to these people inboxes gave you know Uber bought like all of the Lyft receipts from these people supposedly anonymized but like I wrote on Daring Fireball well supposedly you know uh, an iPhone that you do a factory reset on is anonymized too and Uber yes. was tracking that uh, and yeah all- you can't trust them <clears throat> there's all sorts of ways that they could you know backwards correlate you know, even somewhat, somewhat. Anyway, I think a lot of people, and a lot of people were rightly like, whoa, I use this on Romy. I, there's n- absolutely no way that I thought that something like my Lyft receipt would be sold to uh, Uber. Uh, yeah. And it's, it, again, it's one of those things where we don't appreciate the value of our data. And uh, there's a bunch of apps that you can just give permission. Like I remember when I signed up for TripIt, uh, I would just forward them an email with my travel information. They said, why are you going to this trouble? Just give us access to your Gmail. And I no. And I, I eventually I stopped using Gmail because there's just so many services that want to tie into it. And I know that's not exactly an equivalency, but right. I, I just don't want to provide access to that stuff because there's so much information in there. And mine is all just, it's a business email. It's all just a bunch right. of like travel stuff. But that that data is incredibly valuable valuable to me, and they're not really they're not really making a fair purchase decision there. <laughs> so the CEO and founder of this company, Joe Hadei, <laughs> in the day after this came out, he 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 wrote a blog post where he said, "Our users are the heart of our company and service." So it was heartbreaking to see that some of our users were upset to learn about how we monetize our free service. And while we try our best to be open about our business model, recent customer feedback tells me we weren't explicit enough. And it really, again, it, if you read their terms of service, yes, it was in there in certain words, but people don't read the terms of service and everybody knows they don't. And there was certainly no bullet point in the main, like, hey, why you should sign yeah. up for this service. Here's how we make money. And I think what it is, is that people who haven't just, because they don't think like this, good, good, honest people who just don't think that someone would do something like this, hear about the service. They know that their inbox every day, that, you know, two thirds of it isn't spam, but also isn't like the most important stuff. And so something that could help organize that so that the actual like email from colleagues or family or friends is all there organized. Sounds like a good deal. Signs up for it. Uh, and even if you say, well, you know, you're giving them access to your email, they might think, ah, you know, I don't really care. There's nothing, there's nothing in there that that I care about. But then later on you tell them, you know, I know exactly what you bought your husband for father's day last year. What? Yeah. Yeah. You bought him this and because we have your email and, and it's like all of a sudden you tell them an example like that, or you tell them, yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, you know, those four times you got a lift, uh, yeah, we sent those to Uber. Well, they knew when you were out of that. We knew you were traveling. You were out right. of the house. Nobody right. was at your home. I mean, it's and this is not new. I remember uh, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, 
uh, for example, if you go to 7-Eleven and buy a Coke, Coke has no idea you bought it, but 7-Eleven does. And they'll sell that information back to Coke, but they'll also sell it to Pepsi for competitive analysis and to like Lay's potato chips so they can say, we want to be positioned next to Coke on the on the shelf, not next to Pepsi. Uh, and you think that it's anonymous, but it's not because they could figure out based on one unique identifier, one phone number, one time or one email address or something right. that you were the person buying the diapers and the beer at, right. you know, at, at that supermarket that day. I, anyway, like I wrote about this. Give me a fucking break that they're heartbroken that their users are upset. They're not upset. No. If they knew their users would be upset, which is why they hid exactly what they're doing in the small print of the terms of service. They're upset because they're were suddenly the focus of a massive spotlight of a story that every reasonable person would say, wow, that is outrageous and is offensive and I wouldn't use that service, which was obviously going to hurt their brand and make people... I, I, I never even heard of this on Roll Me before. So the first time I heard of it was... <laughs> in the context of don't sign up for this thing yep. <laughs> or well, I know people who use it and they were, they were shocked. Right. Or like, like if you think in the back of your mind that signing up for a free service that can read and index all of your email is a bad idea. Uh, guess what? It yeah. is. They uh, were heartbroken. They got caught. I think you said that well. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, there was somebody on, on uh, Hacker News who posted that he worked for a company that was thinking about acquiring them. And when they did their due diligence, that Unroll Me was literally keeping an archive of every single email of every single email that all of their customers ever got since they signed up for the service. Yeah. And that they were Calling. just sort of served in a scary fashion in Amazon AWS buckets. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's part of the problem here is those buckets could be hacked. It could be an employee decides to abuse the information right. contained in there. When there's extra copies of your stuff hanging around, you no longer have control over that information. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have? I got, I got this. Hulu Live, has, they've shipped a new live TV thing, a $40 a month like cable cutter package. Do you see this? It just came out today. I, I did. I'm jealous. There's all these great services in the U.S. I just simply don't have access to. And you guys have none of that in Canada. No. No, uh, we have like uh, we we allow our telcos to own our uh, broadcasters, so we have Bell and Rogers who own those things, and they don't want to give them to us. So I I looked into this recently because I had to uh, switch. Uh, added uh, we moved, so I had to get new cable service and and internet service and stuff. Um, and at first, because we we're a TiVo family, we've always been a TiVo family, and I couldn't get. And this always happens. This has happened to me for yeah. ten years. Every time I've tried to say changing or getting a new TiVo or something like that. The cable card thing doesn't work. There's like yeah. a card, and and it's. I guess the idea is that uh, that they try to make this super secure. It's the way that they can get the security of the cable signal on a device they don't own. And part of it, I think, is just that they want you to buy their stupid box, their their box. I don't want their box. I want TiVo. Um, but we had a hassle getting our TiVo working. And so I I looked into these services for the first time seriously because I don't watch a lot of TV I I or or cable TV but but my wife does, um, and I I looked at like the PlayStation View service and it looks great it's mm -hmm. it, I think it's like thirty bucks a month or forty bucks a month I don't know but it's it's a reasonable price compared to cable and I looked at the list of channels they had and it's. I, I couldn't find any channels missing that I ever watch. And I asked Amy to look, and she, you know, as far as she could tell, they had all the channels that she watches. They, it, some, it, it varies by city here in the U.S., but like it, it, in Philadelphia, you get ABC, all the major networks, not just the cable networks. You get the broadcast networks. Um, apparently, in some cities, there's the PlayStation View misses something. But it, like, it, 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 I honestly have just because I don't watch a lot of TV and I'm happy with the 
TiVo and, and for what I do watch. And what I, when I watch on my TV, I'm using Apple TV usually. Um, I just hadn't been paying attention. I know the phrase cable cutting. I know what it means. But I wasn't aware that when you sign up for something like this, just how much it's, it's equivalent to having cable TV in terms of what you get per month. You know, that it's the same channels and content. It's just delivered in a dish, different fashion. And so Hulu's getting into it now. But it's weird. Like Hulu, like one of the networks that they don't get is AMC. And there's a couple of good shows on AMC. And I don't understand, you know, what the, what, how that, you know, obviously I guess it's all negotiations, but somehow Hulu doesn't have AMC. And my question for you is where's Apple in this? Because I feel like, like this PlayStation view thing is so much exactly like what we've been hearing Apple might do. Um, I, I, what the heck do you think is going on? Yeah, and it's especially frustrating because one of the reasons that we kept hearing that the Apple TV didn't launch earlier is that they were working on these over-the-top services or originally like an Apple video version of what Apple Music was where you'd pay one price, $30, and you'd have access to all the major channels. And then the negotiations broke down. And then we heard that, again, they had become like a set-top box sort of thing, and those broke down. And it sort of reminds me of uh, music. When it went DRM-free, they just didn't give it to Apple. It was DRM-free on Amazon MP3 first. And they wanted to break Apple's hold on the music industry, and that was one of the leaders they tried to pull. And then eventually it broke down and Apple got uh, M- uh, DRM-free MP3 music like everybody else. And I wonder if there's still this sort of feeling in the entertainment industry that Apple destroyed their music business. And they'll be damned if they let Apple destroy their video business. And it ends up being not an advantage to Apple that they right. did iTunes, they did Apple Music, but a disadvantage. And now it's, it's these companies are more reticent to give Apple this product. And they want to make sure they seed the market with a lot of active competitors before they agree to terms with Apple. Yeah, I think that that might be it. I really do that Apple is having a much harder time negotiating just because of exactly what you said. And it has nothing really to do about dollar amounts, but just sort of a vague notion that the entertainment industry feels like Apple picked their pocket last time. Yeah. Even though I don't think there's any aspect of it that wasn't above the board. I just think that they I think basically they thought when they first you know, allowed Apple to create the iTunes store that Apple has had this reputation as a niche player. Yes. And, you know, the iPod at the time was a Mac-only device, and so it limited, you know, even if it was wildly successful among the, all the people who could get an iPod got an iPod, it still wasn't that big of a market because it would only be one-to-one with the number of people who have a Mac and that they just never foresaw that Apple, you know, and, you know, even people who don't pay close attention to the computer industry had the basic rough outline of a sketch where Apple was this little tiny California company that was like a 99 to one dwarf compared to Microsoft and Windows and PCs. No, I think that's it entirely. And there was that famous quote, and I know you referenced this recently in the Netflix um, article, where Steve Jobs said your competition is free, and Mm. it's piracy, and it's theft, and it was Napster. And we just saw that with Netflix, where Orange is the New Black was essentially stolen and held for ransom. But the the piracy rates for Netflix are extremely low because the service is so popular, but also so reasonably priced. Right. And so reasonably policed in terms of like, sharing you know that your you know your kid goes to college and still has the family netflix password so what they don't care they don't care if you know your kid's going to university of michigan and your family lives in philadelphia and obviously you know you know that they do the geolocation on ip and they know that they don't care 
It's like, it's, you know, I'm sure that there's some kickoff where at a certain X number of people using the same Netflix account, it automatically triggers something. But if that number is reasonable, they don't care. They feel like- it's so reasonable. Like I, I actually had a family member who was using my account when, when they were staying with me and they went and got their own place and they, uh, you know, they used my account for a little while, I think a month, right. but then they got their own because it was so reasonably priced. Right. They just didn't want to be bound to my, like, they didn't want to see the same things that I was watching all the time. I th- uh, Sorry. I, I, well, I just feel like you cannot overstate how important that yeah. is to Netflix's runaway success. Their generosity in terms of, or not generosity, but relaxedness of it's this. It's like almost like a pragmatism. Right. Compare and contrast with the, the Comcast attitude with these cable yes. cards and the TiVo, where literally an actual service person came to the house twice and failed to get one to actually work and register. They treat you like a criminal, not like a customer. They were very nice to me. It's just that they've set up the technology. The service people were super nice, but that the technology is designed from a perspective to be super, super persnickety yes. in terms of this. And I, the only logic behind it is that they're fearful that I'm going to like pop the cable card out of my TiVo and go to your house and put it in your yeah. TiVo and watch Game of Thrones one Sunday night for free at your or house. Or hook it up to a computer and get their high-quality stream of Star Wars I and guess, put it up on the internet. Right. Whatever. It's crazy. Yeah. But the yeah. Netflix style is proven, you know, and their runaway success in every regard shows. Well, that. it's like iTunes, and instead of assuming that you're someone who will who wants to rip them off, they assume that you're a customer who wants to be good, and they give you right. a product that engenders that. Right, and so it's very interesting to me to see that, like, the BitTorrent rates for all this stuff has actually gone down. Um, yeah, and that a lot of what is left. It seems to be attributable to content that's not available in certain places. So, like Game of Thrones in particular is probably. I think I don't even think there's a question that it's the most pirated, you know, content on BitTorrent. Yeah. Um, but and apparently, a, travelers because a lot of the stuff was stream only for a long time. And but they just wanted huge, to have it with them on a plane. Or something. a huge part of that though is is the parts around the world where Game of Thrones isn't even legally yeah. available. So it's it's pretty interesting, and I do think that there is a huge convenience factor on that. I mean, part of it for me is that. Uh, I, I do. I, 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 you know, I know there's some people who pirate all sorts of stuff and don't think twice about it. But I, and you know, when I was younger, I did. I had you know pirated copies of Photoshop. You know, when I was in college, because I'm, I'm, what was I going to do? Spend six hundred dollars for Photoshop? No. Uh, I mean, but I, I stopped pirating stuff as soon as I could afford to buy stuff. You know, it just because I knew it was wrong. I just you know, I don't know. And so there is a honestly, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad, but I do, I don't know. And I create, you know, partly I'm biased. I create content. I happen yeah. to give my stuff away, but in, you know, in theory, I can imagine, you know, selling it and I, it would not make me happy if people were, uh, <laughs> bootlegging it. Well, you uh, still want them to go to Daring Firewall to get it. You don't want someone right. else just reproducing your entire website on exactly. three or four other websites. Exactly. Perfect yeah. example. Right. I, you know, it's so I, you know, as a content creator, I, I might be more sympathetic, but it just seems like it's the right thing to do. But also, even just putting the morals of it behind as a lazy person, I, the BitTorrent thing just seems like so much yeah. work. Oh my God. It's just, I, I, how can and you can bother? get malware and all sorts of things. Yeah, I, I just you know, it's these crazy file formats and part one, part two, part three, and you got to stitch yeah. them together and all. What the hell? I just want to. <laughs> I, I honest to God, I really and you know, I just want to talk to the microphone and say, put the Godfather Part Two on. Yes, I really do, and it just yeah. spins for a little bit, and then I hit a button and it starts playing. Yeah, no, totally. So I can't do it. All right. Anything so else you Apple wanted to talk about? Together. 
Uh, no, I mean, um, I think we hit on all the major points now. Okay. There was that, that minor flare up again in, in Apple's role in App Store and, and indie apps, but that's what was not that? a new argument. Um, well, Apple put out their uh, their job creation, and they often tout how many iOS developers uh. they've, they've empowered to this. So Matt Gemmel put up a post saying that Apple, you know, and he was he also mentioned consumers and developers and everything once again. But the App Store was responsible for devaluing software. Um, yeah, I saw that, and I I was nodding my head the whole time, but I I, I didn't see anything as new, and I don't know. I mean, there is something to be said there, and I sort of agree with it. Um, I don't know though that anything has actually changed in that regard. No, I wrote about it earlier today because I sort of I talked to a lot of our developer friends and a lot of people you know who are involved in the industry, and there's sort of this consensus that, uh, and I, I think this is true that it, it sort of hit uh, traditional software developers hard because they thought that they were the new thing, but they turned out to be traditional in every sense of the word, and that's just as open to disruption as any industry. And we no longer live in an age where only a few people have computers, and you spend five hundred dollars for WordStar, and there's a box of software on the shelf, and all of those things are true. We now have almost everyone has access to ubiquitously connected. Uh, computing devices, thanks to the smartphone, and what we perceive of as apps is incredibly different. There's millions of apps, and no one's going to spend thirty to forty dollars for a thousand apps a year. It's just, it's not possible. Uh, and the same token, no one's going to spend five hundred dollars on WordStar now that Google Docs is in every browser. So the right. entire industry is turned upside down. And I think the App Store may have hastened that, but I, I think it's it's more a reflection of where the industry went, and not a not a single handed dastardly villain sort of a thing. Right, but you know, people are. Tens and tens and hundreds, maybe thousands of people are spending ten, fifteen dollars a week on Clash of yeah. Clans and and uh, Candy Crush, Candy Crush, in, yeah. in game upgrades, and then somebody like Tapbots, you know, puts exquisite a year long exquisite work into a Twitter client and wants to charge four dollars for the upgrade from the old one, and pe- same people are outraged. So yeah, I get I mean- it. It's traditional, it. like we will pay for ego and instant gratification. It's why that always why tulips right. were worth a fortune. It made no sense, but we wanted to have more tulips than our friends had. Right. It's like that uh, like a Twitter client could make a, a four pay Twitter client could make more money by like uh, like locking you out of features than by just charging up front. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. It's just I think it's a, a far bigger uh, movement than than an app store can yeah. account for. It's just the it's the guy English said this really well a couple of years ago. It's we've gotten to a pop culture for apps. It took longer to get there than it did for other mediums, but right. it, it still got there. Yeah, uh, I know it's just a small thing. It's just a small thing, but I, I and it's funny because it actually popped into my head yesterday after you agreed to be on the show. Um, but I keep. Uh, an Apple note, an iCloud note with the list of all the episodes yeah. of the talk show and who's been on them and the episode number, just so I have it to reference. And, um, and I type like, you know, like this episode that we're doing right now is episode 189. And then I type tab and then I type Renee Ritchie. And then I might put in parentheses, you know, just like the basic topics, you know, of what we did. Yeah. And then it's there and I can look back to it in the past, but I was doing it on my phone and I can't type a tab. I have to type a space and then I go on later on, I'll open it up on my Mac and replace the space with a tab. And I want to do that because, uh, I'm a picky, (laughs) picky person, but, uh, San Francisco, uh, the font that Apple notes uses now doesn't have proportionate numbers. So in other words, in a lot of fonts, especially older digital fonts, they would make, even if the font itself was not a monospace font, like courier, it, the numbers are so mm-hmm. that if you type one 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 and then four 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 underneath it, the numbers line up. 
the number one is just as wide as the number four. Um, San Francisco isn't like that. It's a non-proportionate font. So the ones in particular are narrower than the other numbers. And so if I use the space, if I type the episode number and a space and then your name, then the names don't line up and that bothers me. So I type a tab, but I can't type the tab on my iPhone. And that, I, I, that seems like a bizarre oversight in 2017. And it just hits me with and the ongoing debate over can you you know do you, is there a need for a Mac can you do all your work on iOS well hell you can't even type a tab on the f- iPhone. No, it's very true. I mean, there's just there there doesn't seem to me like uh, there's any reason why the ask basic ASCII characters not be available on an iPhone. I mean, especially not in 2017. Uh, I, I think here's my suggestion to anybody at Apple who's listening. I would suggest it be a. Uh, a little pop-up on the space bar, on a tap and hold on the space bar. Make tab, you know, if you're looking for a place to put it. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, but the Mac, here's the thing. The Mac had a way to type all of these extended characters, like, in, I think, right in 1984. And if it wasn't, it was certainly there by, like, 85 or 86. And they're great. They're so brilliant. And it's one of the ways, one of the little ways that the Mac has always been so much better than DOS and Windows, where if you yes. wanted to type an M dash, it not only was it pretty easy to do it, but there's actually a really clever mnemonic to the shortcut. It's option shift hyphen. Well, mm-hmm. hyphen is like a dash and a shift makes it bigger. So yep. option dash would give you like the little mini dash, like the N dash and option shift dash would give you the bigger one because shift is bigger and you get the dash. Um, option eight gives you a bullet character because eight is the character with the asterisk, which is sort of the ASCII bullet character. Uh, Option zero is the degree symbol for temperatures. No, is it? I thought it's option shift eight is the degree. No, sorry. The, well, the, the bullet I think is option shift eight. And then the higher one, the degree character is I think shift zero, but it's Uh, all well considered. Like the, it's where you would assume that the character would be. Right. How do you type the upside down exclamation mark? you type option one because yep. that's where the exclamation mark is. So brilliant. Whereas in windows, it was like alt two, one, three, six. It gives you, yes. a, you know, <laughs> a, a pound sign or whatever, uh, like the British pound, uh, crazy, like no, no logic to it at all. It's just, just some arbitrary numeric mapping. Um, the Mac had it. It's brilliant. It's been there forever. How do you type a pie pie character? You know, like 3.14159. That o- I don't know. The, option the P. Car- oh yeah. Nice. Option shift P gives you a capital Pi. It's, and option slash gives you the percentage. Uh, yeah, it's there's yeah. so many there's so there's and there's just so cleverly assigned and they've been like that for over thirty years. And yet on iOS you can't type uh, half of those characters at all. And um, you know, I, I don't understand why that's not possible. Dear keyboard team friends, and while they're doing that, I'm going to say this completely unabashedly. Let me long press on the French fries to get poutine, tater tots, and hash browns. <laughs> I I support that wholeheartedly. Someone has to do it. Uh, I, mean, I just I I mean I'm going down memory lane here, but I know I don't even have to think. I I I, I type these without even thinking. Yeah. So I just had to double check to be sure. But you can type option semicolon and you get an ellipse. It's I guess that one's not super mnemonic, but anyway. Anyway, that's my complaint. I want someone at Apple to let me type a tab character on my phone. Uh, anything else? Uh, not that comes to mind. Renee, I thank you for your time. Hope you have a good weekend. 
Thank you I so much. I will see you, you soon. Too. I'm looking forward to it. I'll see you a month from now. We'll be, we'll be palling around at the uh, keynote. Yeah, I can't wait. It should be a good year. Yeah. So uh, I will. it's very nice to sign off and say I'll see you soon, but I'll see you soon. Absolutely. My thanks to our sponsors. Our sponsors this week were, uh, let me see if I can do it off the top of my head. We had Squarespace. That's a place to go to build a website. We had Casper, where you go to get a mattress. Who is our third sponsor? I forget the third sponsor. Third sponsor was, oh, of course, it was Audible. That's the place with uh, an unmatched selection of audio. All right, Renee, thank you.